Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's Eric at eblawfirm.us. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Uh-oh, and he got an Uh-oh. echo. There we go. Killed the echo, and I know we had that stupid Skype sound on at the beginning. I apologize for that. Already off to a very unprofessional start here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. On December 20th, 2018, a little bit after 9 p.m., and uh, yeah, that was Eric Benzamokin's ad. Attorney Eric Benzamokin. Uh, I, I think his email just got drowned out a bit at the end because of that stupid Skype sound, but that's... Uh, Eric at eblawfirm.us, Eric at eblawfirm.us if you need to contact him about anything. He won't bite. He, he will not uh, send you a bill for emailing him. I know some people are afraid to talk to attorneys. They think it's going to obligate them in some way or it's going to bill them in some way. No, just uh, if you got a legal concern, uh, especially about uh, something you think might be uh, good for arbitration or mediation, uh, drop him a line. Anyway. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis, and we have a big free roll tonight, partially thanks to Eric Bensamokin, and you better get in there quickly, though. It's only until 9.25 when you can register. It actually started 11 minutes ago at 9 p.m. We ran a bit late tonight, so the free roll already started at 9 p.m., but don't worry. You have until 9.25 to start with a full stack, late registration. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which requires a separate account, Please see PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll for the information regarding 
qualifying for the free money. Ignorance of those rules is no excuse. If you don't qualify, you don't get the money. It's that simple. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Again, $300 this week is being given away, just like last week. This week, 150 came from Eric Benzamokin. $100 came from Handicap Me, another longtime listener of the show. And $50 came from me as part of my pledge to donate $400 to the free rolls to give back some of the unclaimed money that has uh, accumulated over the years when people have won prizes and I just uh, haven't been able to pay them because they never get a hold of me. So uh, I've given away now 150 so 250 is still going to come from me. And th- at that point, I'll reevaluate and see, you know, maybe I'll give a little bit more after that's over. But at the very least, I'm going to give away 400 50 of it is this week. So it's a $300 free roll. The prizes are as follows. We're paying five places. $150 for first. That's a great prize for a very small field free roll. It's not going to be a big field here. I see people playing in, in thousands of people fields deep on sites like PokerStars to win less money than that as the top prize. Here, here the top prize is 150 and, and there's always fewer than 100 people. Uh, sometimes even fewer than 50, depending on uh, when we're broadcasting, playing this free roll. So definitely a, a great value for you. Well, it's an excellent value because it's free. But you have a, a very good chance of winning, and it's it's easy. Easy to qualify, easy to win because there's a, a small field. So 150 for first, 75 for second, which is still a very nice prize, 40 for third, 25 for fourth and 10 for fifth. So that's 150, 75, 40, 25, and 10. Those are the five prizes we are giving away this week. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Handicap Me, for uh, your generous donations. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room where you can play. We're going to have one of these uh, every time we do a show. We're going to try at least. The show is now a weekly show again. I'm not better. I have not recovered. A lot of the problems I had when I first started having my health issues in mid-August, I still have. These problems I may have for the rest of my life. But at some point, you got to deal. You got to say, what can I really do? And what can I not really do? I decided radio is something I can do. So I'm going to do it. I enjoy it. I know you guys enjoy it. I don't want to do away with it or do the once a month thing I was doing before. It, it was bothering me. It was bothering me. I, I kept seeing things come up in the gambling world, in the poker world, in, in my own life that I wanted to discuss on radio and I could not do it because I wasn't doing a show. And I wasn't happy. So we're back every week and not really much to report as far as my health. It's pretty much the same as it was before. And we shall get going. Of course, if you want to call into the show, 775-FRAUD55 is the phone number. 775-372-8355. Don't call the Mount Charleston line this week. It will not work. Don't call it. 775-372-8355 is the only number to call into the show this week. Uh, it's still due to Skype problems. I, I've had to basically rig it through my cell phone to take calls. Don't even ask. That's the only way I can do it. It's the only way it'll work. And this is something I came up with on my own. It's not even something Skype suggested or was suggested anywhere else on the web. I actually thought about the problem and realized there's only one way 
that I can take calls during this show. And that is through this weird setup I did, which most of you won't be able to tell the difference, except it may be harder for me to see when a call's coming in. I've got to actually be looking at my cell phone and see the call coming in. So if, if, if you don't reach me, don't worry about it. Just call again about 15 minutes later, but always try to call between segments. That's the best time to call. Don't call the Mount Charleston line. Do not call it. If you call the Mount Charleston line, then I'm going to stop taking your calls completely because it, it screws things up. And I'm, in the meantime, I'm trying to come up with an alternative to Skype, which has been ruined by Microsoft. I had someone ask me, uh, you know, is there something I can do to help? Or, you know, is, is there some feature, you, is some setting you can change differently? No, they took away features from Skype. They actually took away features that were used for this show that now make Skype uh, mostly inappropriate to run a show like this. They made things worse. They did not make things better. They actually removed features. It's not that I don't understand the features. It's not that I don't know how to use them. It's they, they took stuff away, which is very disappointing. You can chat in the chat room if you're listening live. You need a Flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads, but if you have another device or a computer, make sure you have Flash installed. Go into the chat room, and you can chat with other listeners of the show. If you're not listening live, don't bother. We have the call to listen line. The call to listen line is an invention that allows you to listen to this show without having to use a computer, without having to eat up data on your data plan, without buffering occurring if you're listening, streaming live, especially if you're driving somewhere and the reception is not very good. It's just very simple. You call up a phone number and you listen. That's all you have to do. Just call and listen. Never buffers. Plays right through. Great sound quality. The phone number is 605-313-0736. It's located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 605-313-0736. The call to listen line, which is approaching a million minutes listened to in its lifetime since I installed it about three years ago. 605-313-0736. Once again, that's not a way to talk to me, but is a way to listen to me. You can listen to the show. And when we're not live on the air, you can call that number two, and you'll hear one of our almost 300 shows played in reruns all the way through. And then we'd pick another one over and over and over again, picking a random show each time until we come back live on the air. So that is the call to listen line. There are many ways to listen to the show in the archives. If you do not catch it live, you can listen through the iTunes app. You can listen through Google Play. You can listen through Stitcher. You can listen through TuneIn. And you can also listen. What is the name of this? I'm forgetting. It's Radio Something. Now now I've got to go take a look. You're going to hear an echo while I take a look. I apologize for that. And here we go. You here's, can also here's the echo. Listen, what is the name of this? I'm forgetting. It's Radio Something. Not <laughs> radio Public. There it is. I actually had to open up the radio page so it auto played my own show into the show. Not good production value, I admit. Radio Public. It was just bothering me. I didn't remember. So Radio Public is uh, another way you can listen. To listen live, the, the only ways to listen are you know, directly on the Poker Fraud Alert server, on the radio page, or through TuneIn. There's two TuneIn entries for Poker Fraud Alert. One is uh, live and one is the archives. And then also the call to listen line. There is one other way, though. 
and I, I sometimes forget to mention this, on Amazon Alexa, you can listen to the show, both in the archives and the live show. If you want to listen to the live show, you say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. If you want to listen to the archives on uh, Alexa, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn. And then it'll play the last show. And if you want to go to the show before that, you say next. If you want to go to the show before that, you say next. Now, if you want to go all the way back to the 2012, you'll be saying next about 300 times, but you can still do it. And you can say previous to go back forward. It's, it's backwards, but that's how it's programmed. So you can even use your Alexa device to listen to me. And if you have Alexa device in your home, and this is on speaker, and it's making your device light up, then too bad. Like, watch this. Alexa, what is the weather today? Alexa, stop. Alexa, play 1980s music. That ah, see, now I made you listen to 1980s music. I may not play music at the beginning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force your Alexa to listen. Now, this won't work if the show's actually playing on Alexa, but if you have an Alexa in the room while it's playing on another device and it's loud enough, then your Alexa, I guarantee, is going to start playing 1980s music. And you're probably mad at me right now, but tough luck. Calwatt wanted to come this week. Uh, it's going to sound familiar, but uh, he fell asleep. One of these days, I'll start the show early enough to get to Calwatt. In the meantime, let me look for Trey Daruski, who said he's in for tonight. Uh, let me see if I can reach him now. Oops, you know what? I can't reach him this way. Let me see. I have to do something else. I have to do something else to be able to add him onto this. I should have thought about this before. Here we are. Okay, so we're going to add him on here. I don't want to hold call. I hate the new Skype with a passion. I can't tell you how much I hate the, the new Skype. I'm forced to use it. I can't use an old version anymore. It just won't work. won't connect. I held out as long as I could, you know? I held out as long as I could. Let's see if we can reach Trader Ruski. Trader Ruski, hello. I think we got Trader Ruski. Is he here? No, he's out there. Let me try one more time. Oh, here he, he is. Dropped. There you are. Okay, good, good. We have you. All right, beautiful. How are you doing tonight, Trader Ruski? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Well, the usual, you know. I could be better, yeah, but... I uh, about the aggravation. Yeah, you know, it's, it's well enough to do this show. I, I do hear some uh, echo in the background. Do you have the show on the background? No, no, I turned it off before I answered. Weird. So. Okay, if this doesn't... If I keep hearing the echo, I'll have to call you back. Uh, so anyway, I, yeah, I'm still hearing the echo. Whenever you're not on mute, I hear the echo. It's weird. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you right back. Okay, cool. All right. What a pain in the butt. Let's hope this works. I don't think that uh, Adam Schwartz, Terrence Chan, and Daniel Negreanu on their Death Poker podcast, I don't think they have segments like this where they're trying to connect themselves together at the beginning. I, for some reason, I don't think that's part of their show. Is that better? Uh, let's see. For the moment, I think so. I do hear a little bit of... No, I'm, I'm hearing this echo. It's really strange. Are you sure there's no, yeah, nothing? Yeah, you sure there's nothing open in the background? Now I've got my computer muted. Everything is muted. Okay, now it's sounding better. All right, good. Let's just stick with this. I'm, af- I'm afraid to touch anything further. If, if it's sort of working, that's good enough for me, given the current state of Skype. 
All right, so I'm going to go through the agenda, and uh, then we're going to get going. People have uh, told me they're happy with the uh, streamlined agenda, and that you, you can thank my, my LPR for this. I've, I have limited time to do the show before uh, I'll, I'll do damage to my throat, so I've got to cut the agenda shorter. So here's what we're doing tonight. I'm going to tell you a personal story to start the show about an attempt to find an old friend from the 80s and something depressing I found. But I'm hearing some tapping in the background. Uh, the World Series of Poker 2019 preliminary dates have been announced, meaning that the date it starts and the date it ends have been, you know, that's set in stone. Preliminary meaning they don't have the full schedule up yet, but that's, that's been announced. As have some events, and there are some changes they've already announced to the World Series itself. I'm going to talk about all that, analyze all that. This just dropped today. Uh, Seth Polanski told me that uh, they were going to do it on Monday, but they decided to wait for the day of Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and they were going to do it yesterday. And he said, you know, I noticed you're not doing your show, uh, so, uh, you know, are you going to do it tomorrow? I said, yes. He said, okay, we'll wait and do it tomorrow. Okay, it's not true. I'd, I'd like to think that's true, though. I'd like to think that Seth's been watching and uh, only released this when he saw that we're doing a show today. But, yeah, it dropped this morning at about 10 a.m., and I happened to be right at the computer then, and I, I made a post about it, and, uh, and I'll talk all about it. And I, I do plan to play this year, despite my uh, health issues. I got scammed, or I shouldn't say scammed, I got stolen from. Uh, a shady Chinese payment processor for Bovada stole... Money from my credit card. They basically made it an un- unauthorized credit card charge more than a year after I last used that card. They waited a long time to steal, I think by design. I'll tell you about that scam and what you should do to make sure it didn't happen to you. Perlod Friedman, he's back in the news. He tweeted that uh, most poker players are Republicans, but those are the bad players. So we'll talk about that uh, assessment of Prahlad's. A federal sports betting bill has been introduced. Right now, it's up to the states to decide if they want sports betting and to set their own regulations. A federal bill seeks to change that process somewhat. In 2011, they reinterpreted the 1961 Wire Act to make it to where online poker was not illegal under that Wire Act, which, of course, was written before the Internet even existed. Uh, And that paved the way for legalized online poker, which exists to some extent in the United States. That may be reinterpreted very soon. We'll talk about that and what it might mean for the legalized online poker rooms that currently exist and might come to exist in the future. Iovation, the company run by Greg Pearson, one of the UB cheaters, we have him on tape talking about uh, under-refunding people in a secretly recorded meeting that they had at UB after the scandal became public. Not a good guy, Greg Pearson. Still currently CEO of Iovation, which ironically uh, specializes in preventing computer fraud, uh, uh, payment fraud and, uh, and fraud on uh, any kind of e-commerce sites. They're getting back into the online gaming world through an an online gambling software provider called Playtech. I'll tell you about that disturbing story. We'll talk a bit about the Facebook data scandal, part two. Part one was back in February. Part two just dropped recently, or just revealed recently by the New York Times. If you have sent private messages on Facebook, guess what? They're not so private 
other companies that have nothing to do with Facebook had access to your private messages and could have read them. Very, very disturbing stuff. We'll talk a bit about that. A Minnesota poker pro who seemed to be a high roller and seemed to have a deep bankroll apparently had that bankroll through scamming. We'll talk about how he claimed he had the money and how he really got the money. A masseuse in a Florida casino approached a man and said that she gives private massages and asked if he wanted to go back to the room with her. And he did. Well, he actually got to do more than a massage with her, as often is the case with these, quote, massage girls. But then she was having chest pain. And then something else happened. If you want to hear what that is, you can wait until that segment. I'm not going to give the whole show away in the agenda. Not this time. Amanda Leatherman, we talked about her last week. She's back with Daniel Negreanu. We're not going to go into that story again, but she was taunted by a listener to this show this week on uh, on Twitter, and she responded. So I'm going to read her response and also read the taunt that got her to respond, which uh, she responded to and Daniel also saw but did not respond to. By the way, I'm not advocating bothering Amanda or, or Daniel on uh, Twitter. I just, uh, But since this happened, I might as well read it. Initiative Q. You may have seen Initiative Q plugged by friends on Facebook, where all you have to do is sign up, give your name, give your email address, and you will receive future currency, which will be used to make payments all over the world. Right now, Initiative Q, if you sign up, they're projecting that the free Q tokens they give you will be worth something like $17,000. So why not do it? I will tell you all about Initiative Q and even play their little ad and critique the ad. I love doing those things. I love playing things and commenting on them. That's one of my favorite things to do here. This gives me an excuse to do it. If you ever go to the Commerce Casino, which I think you might be doing soon if you have any interest in the L.A. Poker Classic or the cash games that surround the L.A. Poker Classic, and it's a long event. It goes on for almost two months. If you're going to come to Commerce, I have a trick for you if you want to stay in the hotel and save a lot of money. It's a legal trick. You will not get in any trouble for doing it. If you would, I would not be revealing it on this show. Something completely legal. But we'll save you money. Speaking of massages, maybe we'll do two massage topics together, even though they're sort of different. There is a lawsuit against a former Bellagio casino massage provider. And what's most interesting is it gives a look into how the compensation really works for those massage girls. I'm talking about the ones that go around and uh, ask you if you want a massage in, uh, in the poker room or the casino, you know, when people are getting casino massages, the lawsuit kind of eh, opened up a view into that industry. So I'll talk a little bit about that. I will give you a flashback story to almost exactly 10 years ago, December 17th, 2008, the second snowiest day in Las Vegas history. I was there. I predicted Real, measurable snow falling on Vegas that day. The local weather channels were not predicting it. 
The Weather Channel itself was not predicting it. No one was predicting it except for me. I was saying, I think we're going to get measurable snow in Las Vegas on Wednesday, which was December 17th back then. People laughed at me. People mocked me. People lectured me in the poker room that this is absurd and insane. And then six inches of snow in Las Vegas, December 17th, 2008. I will tell you that story. And that was almost exactly 10 years ago today. 10 years and three days. A royal flush is hard enough to hit, but what about a sequential royal flush? That's a royal flush in this order. 10 jack, queen, king, ace, or ace, king, queen, jack, 10. Very, very hard to hit it. One was hit at Red Rock, and fortunately for that person, they were playing on a special machine that gave a large jackpot for hitting the sequential royal. Talk a bit about how much they got and whether those machines are worth playing. Finally, an Indian casino that was part of the Penn National Gaming Empire, the Hollywood brand, even though it wasn't in Hollywood or even near Hollywood, has separated and been dropped from the Hollywood brand and is now independent after staggering losses. This is a San Diego area casino. That'll be our final topic for the night. I don't want to take too much time on any topic. There's a lot of topics tonight, and I can't do an eight-hour show for physical reasons, so we will get going right now. If you are not in the free roll, you're not going to win tonight because you can't get in anymore. It ended eight minutes ago, the registration period, that is. The free roll itself is alive and running. Uh, By the way, not that I suspect that this is happening, but uh, we do periodic audits there for... uh, any kind of malfeasance, which means any kind of chip dumping, any kind of uh, playing from similar IPs. It doesn't have to be the same. I can tell if you're in the same area. Uh, I, we, 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 we monitor this. So uh, just letting anybody know, not, not that I suspect this is happening, but just letting anybody know who's thinking of doing anything shady. And I'm saying this because the prizes are getting a little bit bigger. When the prizes were you know, $40, I, I wasn't worried about this. 150 we seem to be giving away a lot recently for as top prize. So just want to let everybody know if we catch you, then you will be banned forever. You, of course, won't be paid for your win. You'll also be banned from the forum, and we may also publicize your personal information if we have uh, very conclusive info. If it's, just, if it's just suspected, we won't publicize your personal information, but we will ban you. So, uh, you know, it's up to us. We can ban you if we feel like it, and if, if there's even a suspicion you're doing it, you, you will get banned. So, so don't do it. Play honestly. We are watching for it. It's not that hard to watch for because they're not big fields. If it was thousands of people, we'd need a, you know, a, a, a full-time team to watch for this. But this is not hard to check. This is not hard to check uh, how chips are being lost. And, uh, and if IPs are in certain areas, there's, there's tools to do that. And we have them. Anyway. I want to tell you a bit about what happened... Uh, something last night that affected me. And I think everybody eventually deals with it sometime or another when it comes to social media and, and looking up old friends. So we're going to go back to 1988. And at the time, I was online. I was online in 1988. There was a kind of a version of social media that existed then called computer bulletin boards, BBSs. 
Traderuski, when was the first time you were online? What was the first year you got online? I know you're a little older than me, but when was the first time you got online in any kind of way? Yeah, probably 89-ish. Maybe 88. Okay. So I first got on 86, but I I was younger than you. You were already an adult at that point. I was uh, in 88. I was 16. And uh, at the time, the BBS is in my area. I was in kind of like southwest L.A. County. And I could only, I only called the BBSs that were, for the most part, I only called the ones that were local calls to my home. So it didn't cost me money to call into these things. It's not like the internet where you can just connect anywhere. You know, back then you, you had to dial directly into the computer you're calling. And if it's long distance, you'd pay long distance charges, the same way you would on a phone call. So in that area, uh, a lot of the BBSs were run by, well, for lack of better words, assholes. <laughs> Uh, some were just uh, overly controlling and bossy and nasty to people. Others played favorites very much uh, and were very unfair. Uh, even worse, there were others that if they didn't like you, they and their friends would, uh, if they had your personal information, would, would come over to your house and, and vandalize your house or vandalize your car. This this was very common in the 80s, especially at least in the area where I lived it was. So kind of the... the uh, you can get yourself into hot water on those BBSs back then if you caused any controversy. So I, I had some of those issues with, with, with people, you know, like I, I got into arguments back and forth. And then, yes, yeah, so I, I had some of those things happen. People that uh, vandalized my house, people that vandalized my car. I, I had things like that happen. It was uh, I'm 16 years old. It's pretty disturbing. It's kind of hard to explain to my parents. Uh, what I found, though, was that um, there was some strength in numbers. And if you got a bunch of people together to be in what was called a group then, I, I hate to liken it to a gang, but <laughs> it has some gang-like qualities. If, if you get others together, you know, like-minded people, um, and, and people thought if they screw with you, they're screwing with all of you, then then uh, that would happen much less. And, and so I had met a guy named Eric, E-R-I-K was the way he spelled his name, and he was the same age as me. He was actually a few months younger, so he was, I, I had just turned 16, and he was still 15, but going to be 16 in a few months. And uh, we became very fast friends. We had a lot in common. We had uh, similar personalities. Uh, there, there was, uh, yeah, he was he was a very intelligent guy. Of course, we were within a few months of each other's age, in the same grade. He lived about 15 miles away from me. He did not go to my school. But I was able to drive and see him in person because you know, I, I, I could drive. I was 16. So we became very fast friends. And we became like inseparable for most of 1988, starting from when I met him kind of in the spring. Uh, so he and I formed one of these groups and we kept adding people. And pretty soon we had a pretty big group. That it was all mostly teenagers. It was all teenagers, actually, ranging from like age uh, like thirteen to nineteen. But uh, we actually became uh, pretty powerful in the scene there. Like people were afraid to screw with us. We uh, so so we pretty much eventually ran the, the the whole scene on those BBSs. Even though we didn't, we only ran one BBS. We ran our own BBS for the group. But like uh, we. Pretty much uh, no one wanted to run afoul of us. I, it, it sounds stupid, but it was true. 
Uh, and, and we didn't resort to the things that some other people did. Like, we didn't go and vandalize anyone's houses or cars, nothing like that. It was just um, – we just got into a lot of antics that made our, our, our group seem like – it seemed a lot more fearsome than it really was. Let me let me put it that way. Uh, and we were just a bunch of teenagers. And, and some of the stuff, you know, back then I wouldn't have – I wouldn't do today. You know, you have to keep in mind I was a 16-year-old and, uh, you know, teenagers do stupid things. Uh, but the whole thing was pretty fun. It, it was uh, – we, we got into a, a lot of stuff, me and Eric, together. And uh, – we didn't do anything too bad, but uh, anyway, I really thought that he and I were going to be lifetime friends. In fact, you know, at, at that point, I was probably his best friend, and he was my best friend. You know, like like uh, we we became very close very fast. Something else that was kind of weird. I remember uh, when I when I came to over to his house, you know, I met his sister. His sister was like two years younger than me. His sister was really hot, or at least you know, for a fourteen year old, she was. <laughs> I was really attracted to his sister, but he used to, like, they used to tease each other. He used to always call her ugly and stuff like that. And he'd even, like, ask me. He'd even say things like, uh, you know, something, uh, oh, you, you see how my, ugly my sister is, right? And I'd like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, I, <laughs> I thought the complete opposite. I actually thought his sister was really hot, but, of course, I couldn't say anything to him. Uh, but uh, anyway, we uh, we were very good friends, and... The friendship ended, though, in October of that year. So what happened? How, how did we stop being friends so quickly and so abruptly? Well, there was a guy. His name was Rob. He was 35 years old. And he was on—he was very, very much into the BBS scene. He was very, very obese. This guy was probably like 400 pounds or something. And uh, he had no wife, no girlfriend. The, the BBSs were his life. And... Uh, he was very nice to all of us. He was very supportive of our group and friendly with all of us. Seemed like a really cool guy. And he didn't seem creepy or anything. He didn't seem like he was doing it for sexual reasons. He just seemed like a, a nice guy that was uh, that liked us and we liked him. Well, it turned out that was all BS. Uh, Rob was a snake in the grass. Rob was uh, saw himself as like a double agent where he gained our trust and then his, his goal was to take our entire group down. Now, Rob was a smart guy, and he figured out something. How do you take down a group? Take, take this group of people, almost all of whom are, are, are kids, are, are minors. Trader Risky, how do you think you would take down a group like that? What's the best way? I'd say you get them to all start turning on each other. Well, yes, yes. You're, you're partially on the right track. Turning on each other and their parents. We did, We weren't in control of ourselves. We had to answer to our parents. So he realized, hey, I just have to call the parents of these kids and convince them that their kids are up to no good online and uh, get their parents to take the computers away. But, you know, of course, Rob knew it was a little bit weird to call up people's parents out of the blue as a stranger and try to convince them of things. So he decided to go about it the following way. What he would do is he, he, he since he knew all of us already, he started with the most fringe members, kind of the ones that joined recently, the ones that weren't very close to us, the ones that are kind of in the group but not like really f- friendly with us. And he'd start by turning them against us. The way he would do it, he'd, he'd basically say, look, you know, he, he'd exaggerate 
or make up actually the consequences. Oh, there's a big police investigation. This whole group's going to go down. You're going to lose your computer forever. Your parents are going to ground you for life, blah, blah, blah. But you won't be involved in this if you cooperate. So, uh, you know, just pretend like everything's okay, but I want you to feed me all the information you can and cooperate with this. So it was interesting the responses these kids gave. Some of them said, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, Can I just, you know, can I just drop out of the group and you leave me alone? And after some pressure, he'd finally give up and say, okay, fine, drop out. Just don't ever be part of again. Others agreed and actually did become double agents with him. So I started noticing people are acting strangely. So first he did it with the, the kind of the fringe members. Then he did it with the ones who were a little less fringe that were friendly with us, but not all that close. And he kept moving up and up the ranks until the only two people left who either hadn't dropped out or were working against us were me and Eric. And in this group, I was the president and Eric was the vice president. Okay. So I was going to be the final target. The second to last target was Eric. So he called up Eric. This is in October 1988. And he said to Eric, look, you know, he dropped the whole spiel on him. He said, you're going to be in big trouble. The police are going to come arrest you. Uh, this and that. He, he, he dropped this whole spiel on Eric and said, uh, the only way this is not going to happen is if you work with me against Todd. So Eric, to his credit, said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to screw over my friend. And so... You know, Rob kept threatening him. Eric said, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it. He said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to call your parents. I'm going to tell your parents about this whole thing. So Eric said, you, you, you do what you want. Uh, I'm not doing what you're asking. So he did. He called up uh, Eric's parents, told them, was very convincing. Of course, uh, the parents are getting a call from a 35-year-old and not, uh, you know, and hearing about what their 16-year-old son is doing. So uh, it's a lot easier to believe the adult. And he completely lied. It's not, it's not like he told the parents that true and accurate version of what was happening. There was no police involvement. There was, there was no investigation. There wasn't even anything illegal going on. Uh, but uh, he convinced the parents that uh, basically there was and that I was this horrible person and that Eric needs to... The only chance Eric has to not have his future ruined is to uh, stay away from me and also not tell me that all this is going on. So his parents went to him and said, Eric, you're never going to see or talk to Todd ever again. This is going to ruin your future. We had no idea he was such a bad guy. You know, he seemed nice all the t- when he came over here. And, you know, I know he's a good friend of yours, but, you know, the, the, the guy's obviously trouble. And he's about to get in big trouble. So uh, this is your only way out of this. So do not, do not, do not ever talk to him again. So whenever, so whenever I tried to call Eric, I couldn't reach him. When I tried to call his parents' line, they said he wasn't there. Everything was really strange. I couldn't understand why so many people had dropped out of the group. The ones that were still in the group, most of them were acting kind of weird. Eric then was unreachable. Then it all made sense. On Halloween, I didn't get a treat. I got more of a trick. On Halloween 1988, Rob called up my mom as the final phase of this. And laid the whole thing on her. And his goal was to convince my mom to kick me off of computer bulletin boards forever. Thus finally putting the final dagger in the heart of the group. And he was successful. He convinced my mom. He lied outright about so many things. I, could, I, mean, I actually picked up the other extension and I was listening. 
and I could not believe some of the stuff he was saying. Just, just complete lies. And uh, I felt powerless. And I heard the way he came off. He came off very nice, very reasonable, very professional. He was he mentioned he was 35 years old, and here I was as a 16-year-old kid. My mom wasn't going to believe me. So at the end of the call, my mom took away my computer and said, I'm never going back on these bulletin boards again. And that she believes him. I tried over and over to convince her that he was lying, and she said, there's no way. There's no way this could have been this detailed. There's no way that, uh, you know, that, that, that this is all made up. Uh, you know, and I was trying to convince her this guy is a snake in the grass. This guy, you know, this guy, it's it's a personal vendetta. This I tried to convince her, but she, you know, I, I I understand why my mom did it because he was very very convincing, and I was just a kid. So here I was. I, I couldn't go on the bulletin boards anymore. Um, I couldn't talk to Eric anymore. Uh, my other friends I had made from there also were either no longer talking to me, or I was pissed at them for working against me, which I found out from that phone call. And uh, <clears throat> I, I not only felt defeated, I, 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 I felt so frustrated that this was done based upon lies. So I, I, after the anger subsided, I thought to myself, what do I do? What do I do? Then it came to me. I thought to myself, why did Rob do this? Rob was not really friendly or close to the people we didn't like or the other bulletin board operators. So he wasn't doing this on behalf of anyone else and we definitely never fucked with him. You know, he was he was our friend, we thought. So why would he have done this other than being a sociopath? Why would he have done this? I thought to myself and I said, "Ah. He did it for credibility. He he wanted to be he wanted to brag that he took down our group. He wanted to brag that uh he destroyed the whole thing." He wanted to come off as a badass. So I thought to myself, if he were to not say anything, if the group were to just disappear and he never took credit for it, this would ruin the whole reason he was doing it. He clearly is going to want credit. So now that the final step has been taken and I've been removed, I'm sure he's gone all over the bulletin boards everywhere and posted the story everywhere and is probably assuming I'll never see it because I can't go on the computer anymore. So I gave it about four days, and I told my mom, I said, I said, I, I, I want to make one more call to the bulletin board. She said, absolutely not. I said, no, 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 you, you can watch me. In fact, I want you to watch me. Come up with me. I'm going to call into a bulletin board, and I bet I'm going to find that Rob will have made a post admitting to everything he did. And she said, I, I don't want to do that. I said, no, 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 look. I, I can do it. She said, I promise him you're not going to even log on again. I said, no, 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 look. Come with me upstairs. I'll log in under your supervision. I'll go under a fake account so they won't see it's me. And and we'll read. And if I'm wrong, then uh, no harm. So she said, okay. So we went on. Sure enough, exactly as I predicted, Rob had made a long, long post about everything he did, including about how he lied to my mom and how he exaggerated a lot of things, made up a lot of things, how he got... Uh, it was so satisfying for him to hear him to hear me screaming in the background. It's not true. It's not true. And he had to stifle laughter and uh, and how easy to manipulate my mom was, blah, blah, blah. Well, needless to say, when my mom read that, that changed everything. So 
she said, okay, never mind. <laughs> Here's the computer back. Don't do anything bad. And uh, I'm never listening to this guy again. So as soon as I logged back on, of course, he called up my mom. And my mom really let him have it. Really, really let him have it. And told him to never call her again or she's going to call the police. So I was back. But everybody else was gone. So why am I telling that story now? That's a story from uh, 30 years ago. More than 30 years ago, actually, now. Well, let's think about Eric. We had a very close friendship, albeit a relatively short one, like six months, but very close in that time. And it was ended really kind of artificially because his parents just made him stop talking to me. The only thing I was irritated with Eric about is that he never called to warn me that this was coming. But, you know, to his credit, he told Rob to F off when Rob tried to have him work with him, even at the peril of getting in trouble with his own parents. And he did get in trouble with his own parents. So I thought about that over the year. At first I was kind of pissed with him. Oh, you know, why didn't Eric tell me this is coming? You know, how come he couldn't have snuck a phone call to me? I kind of pissed at him. But then as I got older and a little more mature, I said, you know, uh, I actually... uh, yeah, I actually think he handled it fairly well. Other than that one thing of not warning me, but other than that, I, I at least he didn't screw me over at all. At least he was mostly loyal. But uh, by then, it had been some time since we last talked. It just kind of felt like awkward calling him again, and of course, I didn't want—I couldn't call up and uh, have his parents answer the phone. So I didn't call him. But a few years later, more than a few years, about four or five years later. He messaged me or emailed me. He found my email address somehow. I, I forgot how, but he found my email address somehow. And this is before the web existed. The internet existed, but there's no web. So he couldn't Google me or anything. He emailed me and gave me his phone number. And I called him up and we had like a three hour conversation. And it was, it was a very good conversation. And we were, uh, we were laughing the whole time and talking about our antics from back in 88. And he said to me, you know, I'm in a fraternity now at USC and, you know, I've had girlfriends and all that. He's telling me all these things he's done since then. He goes, but I've never had as much fun as we did that summer in 88. We we got into all kinds of things in in, in the summer of 88, both online and offline. And I told him, I agree. I feel the same way. And so by the end of that that three-hour phone call, he said that, you know, he's glad we got in touch again. We've got to hang out again. You know, we we didn't live that close to each other. I I was going to UC Santa Barbara, and he was at USC, but we weren't that far, probably 100 miles away. So we said we got to get together and, and hang out sometime soon. Well, somehow it never happened. I don't know why. It, just, it was our only call and it never happened. It just kind of faded away and it never happened. Maybe because we hadn't talked in so long that uh, it's kind of easy for both of us to forget to do it. Many years later, I thought to myself, you know, once I got on Facebook, I thought, you know, I should look up Eric and call and see, we'll see if he's up to. Well, I, I couldn't find him anywhere. He wasn't on social media which was surprising. Like a guy who's on the original social media in the 80s is not, is not on modern social media where everybody's on. So every few years I'd check just in case to see if Eric was back on uh, social or was on social media at any point. No, he never was. So it was probably like a few years ago last when I checked and couldn't find anything. And I checked pretty thoroughly. Last night I gave it another shot. He was again not anywhere on social media. So I 
did something I hadn't done previous times I checked. I Googled his name. And I found something I didn't expect to find. Eric was dead. Eric died in May 2018, so it wasn't even that long ago. The cause of death was not stated. There was an obituary. It talked about what he had done with his life. He was not married. He did not have any kids. Um, he lived in Yuma, Arizona. But uh, the circumstances surrounding his death were not mentioned. Of course, at an age like that, he was almost 46 when he died. Things you would suspect at that age, drugs, I don't think so. Of course, I, I hadn't talked to him in almost 26 years, but I don't think so. Just knowing him, like hearing that he died of a drug overdose would be about as surprising as hearing that I did. Now, again, I, I haven't known him in a long time. Maybe he changed, but I would have been very shocked if he, if he uh, that's what did it. So I don't know. It didn't mention an accident. It didn't mention a, a sudden heart attack or something that uh, could have taken him early. It's possible that that's what happened. It just wasn't mentioned. But uh, anyway, I don't know what happened to him. But anyway, he was gone. And I, and I thought to him, it was very depressing to read. Even though it was someone I hadn't talked to in 26 years, and it was someone that I... Uh, was very close friends with, but only for six months. It still really affected me because I always thought that this would be someone that one day we'd reconnect somehow and become friends again. And because that, that was what we had done, uh, you know, four or five years later after that whole thing in '88, and that was the intention. We just kind of never followed through with it. But I always thought, okay, at the very least, you know, I'll talk to him again sometime in the future. I'll talk to him again. I just kind of. Sat there reading the obituary page Looking at the picture of him Which is strangely enough Taken about a few months after I'd last seen him Taken like in early 89 I don't know why they used a picture from that long ago Uh, It's kind of weird He looked like a kid died But it was actually a 45 year old man But uh, I was looking at that picture And I'm thinking It's just so strange I'll never be able to talk to him again What I thought would happen one day Is not going to happen I'm I'm never going to have that conversation with him again I'm never going to Hang out with him. This, it's just... He's just gone. And I know everybody loses people in their lives. I know a lot of you have had uh, parents that have uh, passed away. And I know a lot of you have had people a lot closer to you than a friend from you know, 20-something years ago pass away. And I, and I admit this is not the most devastating loss I, I've encountered in my life, but it was something that just... It affected me more than I expected. So that, that's what I found last night. And you just never know when you look on you, know, you look on social media. You try to find people that were once important to you, and then you find this that they're gone. They're not on this earth anymore. Trader Risky, have you ever looked uh, and, and seen? Uh, have you ever had that experience where you try to look up someone that uh, you knew in the past and, and that you'd like to talk to again, and, and you find out that they've died? Yeah, but I think it was, I don't think, you know, I don't think social media and stuff was happening yet, but a few friends I grew up with died probably late 90s. Yeah. No, and it's, uh, you know, puts things in perspective. And you couldn't find any news articles or anything about it? No, nothing. It was weird. Because you'd think if it was like a car accident or 
something like that, or robbery or something. That definitely would have been like an yeah. article. Yeah, there about wasn't. It. There wasn't. And the obituary, while it mentioned a lot of stuff about his life, mentioned nothing about the cause of death. It was very mysterious. Right. So and, that counts out probably a bunch of other things. And, and you know what's weird is his sister. I thought about her. I said, well, I, I can message her. I can. I'm sure I'll. Well, I'll, I'll used to get a hold of the sister. <laughs> I, I said, you know, I said you know, maybe, maybe I can maybe I can message the sister and ask her what happened in a, in a very polite way and explain. Her, you know, she probably won't remember me by this point, but um, I, I explained who I am and that you know I'm just curious what happened to him and, and you know write some positive things about him and you know, maybe she'll open up and tell me. But she has no social media either. She's still alive. I can I can see, but uh, she's not. Uh, um, she has no social media. So I'm just I'm just gonna, wow. I'm just going to drop it. Best, best, not be a social media fan. So you wouldn't call. You wouldn't call her. You could send her a letter too. Yeah, I, I just feel at some point it gets a little too intrusive to like, you know, just call someone. Like, like I, I didn't even know her well. It was, she was just a sister of a friend I had for six months that I'd see when I'd go over to his house, uh, and I, I mainly remember because she was hot at the time. So <laughs> but I, you know, I'm not I, like I, I just feel like messaging her on Facebook or something. I wouldn't feel weird about um, calling her. I would so. Uh, like if I'd been like a twenty-year-long friend of his, then that's a different story. But it's it just uh, given all circumstances, I guess I'll just never find out. So anyway, it was, it was sad to find that, and uh, I, I didn't have. I had a friend from high school who died in uh, uh, in the early two thousands who actually committed suicide, and it, but uh, I wasn't I wasn't as close friends with that guy, so it didn't affect me as much. I was I was sad to hear about it, but it, it wasn't the same way. I wasn't I was it was kind of only a moderate level friendship with that guy who and it also wasn't that long so that one it was one of these things like oh that's too bad but it, it didn't affect me as much as this one so anyway uh, nice depressing story yeah, now that you say that i guess i have had a few people i've known yeah i just didn't know them well so i guess yeah. i didn't put them in that same uh... so nice nice depressing start to the show and uh if, if you haven't gotten in a bad mood now or a sad mood uh, let's get going and, and get to some things that are a little more positive. Let's start with the World Series of Poker, which which also has upset me before, but uh, hopefully will not be the case in 2019. Uh, I thought that maybe the World Series of Poker would be something that I was not going to play again, because in uh, in mid-August and early September, I was not in a condition to go to any hotels. I, I think I mentioned before that I, I even left thousands of dollars of free play on the table. How, how much does that sound like me, where I didn't go to Vegas to pick up the damn free play because I couldn't travel in any way? I, I could I, I could drive, but I could only drive short distances before I'd freak out. I, I, I had a lot of problems back then, and I, I'm, I'm vastly better psychologically than I was back then. But uh, I mean, you you talked to me, Trader Ruski, during the worst of this. You you heard how I was, and uh, I'm sure you noticed. Uh, oh yeah, I can I can certainly vouch. Yeah. So so this uh, anyway, I I was thinking if this stays this way, I can't play the World Series for sure. But uh, if if I stay the same as I am today, I can play the World Series. So. I think I'll play the World Series. Anyway, they announced today the preliminary schedule, meaning the dates are pretty firm. They could be changed, but they're probably going to stay firm. But the events, they've only announced about seven events, and the rest of them will be filled in later. And they've done this before. I think last week they actually not last last year they dropped a full schedule on December twelfth I believe but uh, this year they're a little bit later but still at least they're ahead of their usual pace where they don't announce anything until that same year of the World Series so at least they're announcing 
at the end of 2018, the 2019 World Series. So here's the information, and I will give you my take on everything. The 2019 World Series will take place from May 28th through July 16th at the Rio in Las Vegas. There have been seven events put on the schedule so far. The rest will appear later. There will probably be, again, somewhere like 77 events or somewhere in that neighborhood. So they only announced about 10% or or fewer of events running. But here's what they've announced so far. On May 30th, there will be four starting days for the new $500 Big 50 No Limit Hold'em. I'll talk about that in a second. It's a new event. June 7th and 8th is the $1,500 Millionaire Maker. Two flights of that, or two days worth of flights at least. June 13th, the senior event. Trader Ruski, you can play it being over 50. I'm still going to be three years away. I'll be 47. It'll be my third time. Yeah. Well, maybe you can win it this time. You got you got to, you got to win before I get in the field. Otherwise, we're going to be battling each other. You got three more years to try before I, I enter. Okay, that's a good goal. June 14th and 15th are the flight starts for the double stack No Limit Hold'em. $1,000 buy-in. June 21st and 22nd are the starting days for the 1500 Monster Stack. June 28th through 30th, three days worth of starting flights for the $888 Crazy Eights Eight-Handed event. No Limit Hold'em. These are all No Limit Hold'em that I've, I've, I'm reading you guys. And that has uh, $888,888 guaranteed to the winner. I played that once and cash in it. I was not the winner, but I, I did cash in it. And then uh, the main event, $10,000 buy-in starting July 3rd on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of the days you can buy in. That will conclude on July 16th when they will have a new World Series of Poker main event champion. So, the big news, well, there's two big pieces of news regarding changes to the World Series of Poker in 2019. Number one involves the Big 50 event. The Big 50 event is a one-time event to celebrate that this is the 50th World Series of Poker. Now, you may say to yourself, well, I didn't know the World Series of Poker began in 1969. I always thought it was beginning in the 70s. I learned something new today. No, you didn't. It did not begin in 69. Well, then how is this the 50th event? Well, because it started in 1970. So if it were 2020, it would be the 51st event, because the 1970 was the first event, 1971 was the second event, and so on, making... 2019, the 50th World Series of Poker. So it's not the 50th anniversary, but it's the 50th event of the World Series of Poker. It's the 50th year of it, not event. So this is celebrating that. In celebration, supposedly, the first buy-in that you do to that event is rake-free. So if you only buy in once, you will pay zero rake. This is a $5 million guarantee event. The prize pool will be at least $5 million, which means that they're going to need 10,000 entries, including the rebuys, to not have an overlay. However, uh, I'm sure they'll get way more than that. This is going to be a very popular event, especially because of the rake-free thing. Though, of course, if you rebuy, there is going to be rake, though they have not specified how much. It's also not clear if it'll still be 500 or if it'll go up to something like 565. It's also not specified what they're going to do about tipping. So if you buy in for 500, 
Is there any tip taken out of that? Because they, they always take a tip out of the pool. And I don't know if they're taking a tip out of this or if it's completely rake-free, tip-free, and you're expected to tip at the end. Or if, if just the tip is going to come from the people who rebuy, and you can see if you want to leave anything additional. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to figure out when figuring out what tip to leave. Because my, my attitude about tipping events, and please don't be mad at me. I know we have some dealers listen to this show, and I'm not trying to take your tips. But uh, my attitude about tipping in poker tournaments is that I will tip the going rate if there's no tip taken out. If there is a tip taken out, then I'm not going to tip. Why? Because if the dealers do a terrible job or are rude to me or anything else, I don't have a right to take back that tip. So if I win the event, I'm tipping a lot of money automatically out of my prize, and I have no choice. So if I'm going to lose that choice to tip, I'm not going to tip additional, even if the service is good. Just as I can't take it away if the service is bad. But... If uh, if there is not a tip taken out, then I will base my tip upon how good the dealers were and, and how hard they tried and how friendly they were. Or they, I don't care about friendly, but how, how at least nice they were. And, uh, you know, overall, I know there's a lot of different dealers. And then, and then you know, base it upon that and, and, and leave a tip there based upon all that. But only if there's no tip taken out. If it's, if it's my choice, then I'll, I'll leave the right tip. If it's not my choice, then the tip's already been made for me. So that's, that's the way I do it. And uh, when, whenever you cash in, in the World Series, they ask, do you want to leave a tip for the dealers, which is a very loaded question. What they should be asking is, do you want to leave an additional tip for the dealers because you've already tipped them? So I clarify that. I say to them, uh, no, I've already tipped, and no thank you. And it's not to be a, a cheapskate. I just I just feel it should be one way or the other. Either the, the dealer should have the guaranteed tip where they know they're not going to get stiffed by cheapskates. Uh, but at the same time, they're not going to be tipped for performance, good or bad. And, or it could be the other way, where they're not guaranteed anything, but if they perform well, they get more. But you can't have the best of both worlds. Anyway. So, I will look at this, though, if I do enter... If, I don't know if I'm going to play this event, but if I play this event and uh, and I cash something, I will look at how how much... How many tips they're really getting? What percentage tip they're really getting? If they're getting less than they normally would, then I, I will throw in something extra. I probably won't rebuy. I'm not a big believer in rebuying usually, uh, in these type of events at least. So I'll probably just take one shot at it if I do play. But the first entry is rake-free. The remaining entries are not. There are four starting flights from what I can tell, though they haven't explicitly said this. Uh, while I think you can play all four starting flights, uh, I think only the very first entry period is the one that's rake-free. I think after that, no matter whether you're playing uh, the first time for that day, it doesn't matter if you've already entered once, then it'll be full rake. There is a guarantee not only of the total prize pool of $5 million minimum, but there's also a guarantee that the winner will receive... One million dollars. Yes. A cool million for the winner from $500 buy-in. Pretty good. Similar to the Colossus, Kev Math, who works for the World Series, tweeted about this today and posted a few times a Poker Fraud Alert as well and said that this should be considered the replacement of the Colossus, though there may be Colossus also. So the Colossus event 
may still take place, or this may be Colossus, basically, with a different name and with the rake-free buy-in. That's May 30th through June 2nd are the day ones. What's the other change? They're going to change the starting stacks by a wide margin. Believe it or not, the first year I played the World Series, the starting stacks were very different than what you'd expect. Trader Risky, when I won the $3,000 Limit Hold'em event in 2005, how many chips do you think we started with in that event? The 3000 limit? Yeah, in 2005. 3000 Right. You started with the exact number of chips as the buy-in. So yeah. you started with 3,000 chips. Now, the blinds were small, so it's not as bad as it sounds, but uh, you, know, the, that you did start with very few chips, uh, at least in an absolute number. So I don't remember the structure being bad. I remember the structure being about equivalent to what we have today. A little bit different, maybe a little bit worse, but it wasn't a bad structure. It wasn't one of these things where you know it's like all luck. You, you, you know, there was play in the later stages, or at least as much as there can be by tournament standards. But you just didn't start with many chips at all. Uh, so I, I knew there had to be pretty small blinds, though, because I know I put like four different bad beats on Dan Shack in the first four levels. So he should have been busted a long time beforehand if the blinds were big enough with only 3,000 chips. I did bust him, though. That was the very first time I met Dan Shack, and nobody knew who he was back then. But now, or as of 2018, they had changed that to be five times the buy-in in most but not all events. So if it's a $1,000 event, you'd get 5,000 chips. If it was a $1,500, you start with 7,500. A 10K event, you start with 50,000. Uh, the 3K event, you get 15,000 and so on and so forth. There were a few events that were not like that, such as the double stack, such as the, uh, the Colossus. So there were some where they gave you a different number of chips. The monster stack was another different one. But most of the events did follow that five times chip format. Part of the reason they did it that way was so they could reuse the chips between events and not worry about chip theft being a huge problem. What do I mean, what I mean by that? Well, let's say they use the same chips for the Colossus. Let's, let's just say hypothetically, I forgot how many you started with the Colossus, but let's say Colossus, they gave you 20000 okay? And it's a $565 buy-in. And then they use the same chips in all the other events, or most of the other events. Well, a cheater could just pocket a bunch of chips that he got very cheaply at the Colossus and then take them over to another event where they'll be worth a lot more. So what they would do for events like Colossus is they used a different chipset to where they, if you did try to pocket them, they wouldn't do you any good. Now, yes, you could still pocket chips like late in events. So like, a, like for example, a, a thousand, a few of the thousand chips the thousand denomination chips. A few of those you could probably take off your stack late in the event and have very little effect on yourself. And you could always put them back when nobody's looking if you really needed them. And then you could sneak them into a $1,500 buy-in event and give yourself a 50% bigger stack or even more. And that would be 
worth doing, provided that uh, you know you didn't mind cheating and taking the risk of getting caught. But I'm saying, the, yes, that could be worth doing from a, a standpoint of, of, exp, of positive expectation. Of course, it's unethical, and if you get caught, you'll be banned from the World Series for life. So I don't suggest any of you doing that. But at, at least, though, you're still taking chips that are the same value per dollar spent on acquiring the chips. So that's why they did it that way. But this year, they're they're doing something a little bit different. I'll have to see what they have for starting chips in the other events. But listen to these screwy chip numbers. So the Big 50 is going to start with 50K in chips. But you may say, okay, well, that's a special event, though. They're just treating it like they did the Colossus. So no big deal, right? But the Millionaire Maker, which is not a special event and only started with 7,500 last year, Starts with 25,000 chips. The Seniors event will start with 20,000 20, chips instead of five like last year. The Double Stack, $1,000 buy-in also, 40K chips. The Monster Stack, which always was different anyway, 50K chips. The Crazy Eights, which also was always different, will have 40K chips. But curiously, the main event will only have 60K chips, only a, a small increase from 50 to 60 over last year. So that's not even consistent. I guess they just don't want to start everybody with just massive number of chips and then start with insanely high blinds. So ignoring the the ones like the Crazy Eights, the Main, and uh, the the, uh, the Big Fifty, and looking at the others, from what I can tell, is that the one K events are starting with twenty K chips typically, and that's why the double stack would get forty. And that the $1,500 events are starting with 25K chips. Now, basing that on the Millionaire Maker. Now, that's not proportionate, if you think about it. If, you, if the 1K events get 20,000 and the 1500 get 25,000, that makes the per-chip value go up you know, when you go from 1,000 to 1,500. Which means if you were to steal chips out of the $1,000 event and bring them to the 1500 it's not a staggering difference, but it's a difference. And again, I'm, I'm not advocating anyone do this. I would never do this myself, and I don't suggest you do it. Unless you don't mind getting arrested, getting banned, getting kicked out of the event. You know, that's uh, if you want all that to happen, then give it a shot. <laughs> but I don't. Anyway, uh they haven't announced the other events, so I don't know what they're going to do with them. But are they going to use different chipsets for everything now? I don't know. Maybe they're going to use different chipsets for each denomination of buy-in. So maybe all the 1500s will have one set, the thousands will have another set. I, I don't know. But now everybody's starting with these five-figure stacks, it looks like, in every single event. Some of you may be saying, great! Wow, the structure's going to be great. No more pressure to chip up quickly this is going to be super deep every event's going to be a deep stack now no not true no chance all they're going to do is raise the blinds they're going to raise the blinds so much that you're probably going to have the same amount of play as you had last year so just your the number of chips you start with is more the number of chips you'll have if you start off well will be more but that's it the blinds will be much bigger from the get-go. That's all it's going to be. They haven't announced the structures yet, but that's, I guarantee that's the way it's going to be. Why they're doing this, I don't know. Maybe they 
are doing this for some sort of weird prestige reason. Like they, they just kind of feel it's weird in a World Series event. You only start with 7,500 chips and then all these other events are starting people in, from other brands are 15,000, 20,000. So they just think it looks weird. So I don't, I don't know the rationale behind this, but that's a change that has been made. But again, don't get too excited about it. It's probably about the same amount of play. In the World Series defense, they are pretty deep events. You do get a lot of play, especially in the $1,500 buy-ins and higher at the World Series compared to other tournaments. And the World Series also has less of the problem at the end where it's complete crapshoot. Some of these other smaller buy-in tournaments at other venues throughout the year, it becomes, unless you're a complete fish, it becomes kind of a, <laughs> a luck fest at the end of who catches cards. And uh, that's less true at the World Series because the structures are better. So that's the World Series news. When more information is released, we will cover it on the show. I plan to be there. If you're going to be there, I'll be glad to meet you. I'm sure you'll see me around, walking through the hallway, uh, wherever. People always seem to run into me. Don't be afraid to say hello if you see me. And I should be there. I'm looking forward to it. Trader Risky, you going to play uh, anything besides the seniors this year, you think? Um, I'm sure I will, but haven't even... Yeah, I haven't really thought that far in advance yet. Yeah, it's a bit early. Oh, oh, one quick thing for everybody. One quick thing. You may want to book early. Why? Because you can cancel for free if you want to stay at the Rio, which I would suggest because it's convenient. You, you just walk down to the tournament. It's easy. If you want to go to your room during dinner break, you can. That's also nice. I would suggest staying there. It's not the nicest hotel, but I'd still suggest staying there for convenience. If you want to stay at the Rio... And I think any other Caesars property in Vegas, too. You can use a promo code to get money off. And that's WSOP9. WSOP number 9 will get you money off your room. So you may want to book now. You can always cancel if you or, or change the reservation later on if uh, what you book today is not uh, good for you. So if there's something you see in that schedule that you know you want to play, you may want to book a room. And... By the way, it's it's very easy to cut off days from the end of your reservation. Starting earlier can be tougher. They'll do it, but it can sometimes mess things up a little bit. But cutting off days at the end, so let's say you, you know you know you're going to want to be there on June 2nd, but you're not sure how long you want to stay, just book like the 2nd through the 9th, for example. And then if it turns out you only want to stay the 2nd through the 6th, you can just call up and say, cut off the final three days. Super easy. They'll cut off the final three days, no penalty. Everything else stays the same. All righty, let's move on. I was a victim of credit card fraud. In December of 2017, I deposited to Bovada using a credit card. Here's what happened. I was playing on Bovada, and I was getting my ass kicked in a good game. So I wanted to rebuy, but I was out of Bitcoin. So my options were give up or, like a degenerate, rebuy on my credit card where I knew there were fees that Bovada would charge. So I chose the degenerate route, and I 
bought in twice to Bovada. And uh, this was on December 6th, 2017. On my credit card statement, perhaps knowing that I was uh, from Poker Fraud Alert, it actually said PFA star N-A-I-R-U-I Co., like company, limited, Shenzhen, China. And that was on my statement twice. Both legitimate charges, and I paid them. It was December 6, 2017. That's what showed up on my statement. Okay? I have not used that card since. That was the last time I touched that card. It's a, it's a credit card I have but rarely use. Why do I keep it? Because occasionally that card will have some kind of promotion where you get like five times points for a, a temporary time using it. So then I'll pull out the card and start using it until that promotion's over. So I've kept the card around, but I, I have not used it once since buying into Bovada now more than a year ago. Well, guess what I noticed on December 16th, 2018, just four days ago. There's a charge for $19.82 from AIP star R-E-W-G-K-F-Y-F-I-C-O, Shanghai, China. Hmm. Now, what do you think? You think those two might be related? You think it's possible that the credit card payment processors in China stole from me? Oh, my goodness. Say it ain't so. Say it ain't so that shady payment processors breaking U.S. law based out of China might actually also engage in credit card fraud. I can't believe it. These seem like salt-of-the-earth people who would never do anything like that. But yeah, they did. <laughs> they, they waited over a year. They waited a year and 10 days before hitting my card for $19.82. You may say to me, well, you know, maybe you made a charge and forgot it. No. No chance. In fact, I've run it up recently. I've done quite well recently on that network. So I need to withdraw. I don't need to deposit. December 16th was a very short time ago. It was only four days ago. So I was nowhere near the deposit button. So definitely, this was fraud. You may say, well, maybe this was from something else. Maybe something else stole your credit card. Very small chance, very, very small chance, because I barely use this credit card, so therefore the number would not have circulated in many places. It's not like I'm shopping online everywhere with this card, and and then this hits, and I go, oh, this looks kind of similar to last year's charge from Bovada. Okay, it's got to be the same thing. No, this is a card I, I almost never use, and now I get a charge like this that has a very similar descriptor also in China. And I've used it in very few places. Obviously, it's that. Very, 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 very high, overwhelming chance that it was that. So does this mean you should be afraid to play on Bovada? Does this mean that Bovada is stealing from people? No, Bovada knows nothing about this. Bovada didn't do this. No employees of Bovada did this. This was done by the payment processor, which is a third-party company that Bovada hires to process these deposits and withdrawals. Now... You may wonder, have I called Bovada to report this? Shouldn't I let them know that their payment processor is stealing from people? No. Why? Because they know. Yes, they know that their payment processor is stealing from people. 
Why don't they mind? Well, they don't like it. But you've heard the phrase, beggars can't be choosers. Bovada needs the payment processors much more than the payment processors need them. It is not easy to find payment processors if you're an illegally operating, U.S.-facing online gambling site. So they can't just say to any payment processor that's guilty of a little bit of malfeasance, you know, we don't appreciate this, you're gone, F you, we're not doing business with you anymore. They won't even threaten that. They don't want to ruin the relationship. So what will Bovada do if you report this? They will deny it. They will never admit this happened. They will never refund you. They'll say, take it up with your bank. They will not investigate it. They will not know. They will not want to know. Even if they did know, which they do, they're not going to do anything. Now, if, they, if their processors were stealing massive amounts of money from every customer, yes, they would kick, they would kick them. At some point, the processor becomes more trouble than they're worth. But in this case, we're just certain people are occasional victims for small amounts of money. Bovada is not going to sever the relationship with the payment processor, nor will they even bother looking into it. So what can you do if this happens? Well, call up your bank. So that's what I did. I called up the bank issuing the credit card. I just I didn't bother going into what happened last year. I just said, look, this was a fraudulent charge, never authorized it, never bought anything from China. The number was obviously stolen. And they removed the charge. I'm sure the bank's just going to eat it. And they are sending me a new credit card with a new credit card number. And that's going to be the end of that. What I suggest to you is that if you have used any credit cards on Bovada or Ignition in the last two years, make sure you check your statements. Make sure you look carefully that there are no weird charges like this. Because as you see, they hit me a year and ten days after I last used that card. Why only $19.82? Well, it could be one of two reasons. It could be that they figure something that low might be overlooked and that uh, either I won't notice it or won't think it's worth calling and complaining about, or this is a test charge and see see what they can get away with. So if I don't say anything about 1982, maybe they will hit me for $30 next time. Maybe they'll try $70 after that, then $150. Maybe they'll just keep escalating and see how much they can steal. Or maybe they're just spreading it thin. Maybe it's the uh, Superman 3 way of stealing. Remember in Superman 3, the plot point where Richard Pryor's character was stealing a few pennies out of each person's paycheck where he worked? So they wouldn't notice, but then it added up to a staggering sum of money because the company was so big. This plot was also reused in Office Space, by the way. And they uh, even said it was from Superman 3. So maybe that's what they're doing. They're stealing around $20 from a lot of different people. Whatever it is, it is credit card fraud. It is being perpetrated by the shady processor. Definitely call up, get a new card number, and have the charge taken off. Even if you don't care about the $20, definitely get a new credit card because this may be just the first of many that will hit you. This may be a test charge. Am I saying that they've surely hit you or likely hit you because they hit me? No. I don't know how many they hit. Maybe they chose only 1% of the customers and I was in the unlucky 1%. Maybe they hit a lot more than that. I don't know. 
I don't think this was directed at me personally. I don't think they said, ah, this Todd guy, what an asshole. Let's, let's rip him off. Now, I don't think it was anything like that. But they decided to rip off a certain percentage of customers. Maybe I was targeted because I made two charges over $500 a year ago, and they figured that someone charging that much maybe won't notice the charge of uh, $19.82. Maybe that's who they targeted, the ones who've been depositing more that maybe can easily afford to lose $19.82 without caring. You know what what they should do if they really want to be smart? They should look for anybody who has a Jewish name and not do it to them because Jews are going to care. You know Jews are not going to let them get away with it. (laughs) So, like... uh, if you see uh, David Feuerstein, you go, okay, no, 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 no. Not going to do it to him. He's going to catch it. Uh, David Feuerstein's going to be all over his credit card statement with a fine-tooth comb. Let's say, uh, oh, look. Look look at this. Here is, uh, here's Christopher Jones. Okay, he, he looks like a good one. That guy's not a Jew for sure. That, that's what they should be doing. They should, they should be passing over the Jews. There should be a payment process or Passover. If they were really sophisticated, that's what they'd do. All right. 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 if you want to call into the show. Otherwise, we're moving on to the next topic. Troy Ruski, I know you play on, on Bovada. How, how do you deposit there? Mostly Bitcoin. Um, but if you know, if I don't have any, I've gone to the credit card. Have you ever seen anything like this before? A few times. No, actually, I just checked all my statements while you were talking <laughs> for the credit or my, you know. Now, here's another question. Have you seen them overcharge you before where they, they say they're charging such and such after fees and then you get charged more? Because I've had that a lot and others I know have had that a lot. Yes. Since you mentioned that, I did, I've been checking, but I haven't, I didn't really go back. Yeah. That, that, that actually happened to me last year. Let me quickly tell this story. I told it before when it happened last year in August, but uh, might as well retell it since this is appropriate. Very briefly. Very briefly. Last year, they just charged extra by like $40 each charge. They just inflated it by like $40. I made two charges, and they were just each inflated by about $40. I, I had the smoking gun proof. And I called Bovada, and boy, were they difficult about it. They just—they tried to say these are bank fees. I had to prove to them they weren't. They tried every trick in the book to get me to drop this matter. They would not give me the freaking $80. Finally, I got like the highest supervisor I could find or the highest manager, whatever it was I could talk to. Had a long talk with her. Still a big flat no. Couldn't, couldn't logically explain it to me, but nope, can't have it. Nope, it's your bank fees. I said, no, it's not. Well, too bad we're not giving it to you. Just wouldn't explain why they wouldn't. Just tough luck. So then I just unloaded on them. I just I just said, look, you guys don't know who you're dealing with here. First of all, I know who all your payment processors are. I could ruin everything if I wanted to be a jerk. I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but if I was really mad, you know, I, I could pretty much get every one of these shut down. And, and I, I could post the information everywhere on the web for the, for the government could find. And, I, you know, I have a radio show that talks all about fraud and uh, in the poker industry and the gambling industry. And I have a website called Poker Fraud Alert specifically about this type of stuff. So are you sure you want to do this to me? Again, I'm not trying to get over on you. I'm not trying to get anything that I don't deserve, but your payment processor stole from me. I know it wasn't you, but it was your payment processor working for you. And you if you need to make good. 
And if you want the money back, go to them and ask them to give you the $80. But I want my $80 back. And if I don't, I'm going to walk away very unhappy. And I'm going to do some things at that point that you're not going to be very happy with. So her question was, can you give me the URL of your website again? So I gave it. She put me on hold for about 15 minutes and came back. Okay, we've decided as a one-time courtesy to give you back the $80. So it was because of this show and this forum on Poker Fraud Alert why they gave it to me. She actually went to go verify that I really have this show and really have this site and that I'm probably not the one to say no to about this. Which I thought was funny. So when I used this credit card in December, which is four months later... She, she had warned me, if this happens again, it's on you. you. You know now that this may happen, so if you use a credit card and you get overcharged, too bad. That basically is what she told me. She said, use Bitcoin from now on if you want to avoid this. So I, I had to take the chance in December, and I was happy when they didn't overcharge me, only to find that the credit card they stole from me a year later. Can't win. So in my recent run-up on that network, I did deposit with Bitcoin. So... Uh, since then, I, I've, I've, I have an easier way to acquire Bitcoin quickly, which is nice. Back then, I didn't have that. So, I don't, I don't hold a lot of Bitcoin, but it's, it's good to be able to access Bitcoin quickly when I want it to quickly then deposit it to a site. Then there's really no risk to me. All right, let's move on. Perlod Friedman, the limousine liberal of poker, is popping off again. On Twitter, Perlod was originally best known as the white rapping poker player who rapped Poker is Fun for Everyone, uh, except for my opponents. You should have practiced avoidance. Let me see if I can find it on YouTube. I should have had this ready. But just in case you didn't see this like 12 years ago, let me see if I can find this on YouTube. Uh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a MC type style. You guys are cool. So I can just break into it. Poker is fun for everyone except my opponents. They should have practiced avoidance. They ain't big proponents. Not just in the moment, but then possible future problems. Sometimes comes tough to solve them. Then I awaken to a dream. I fell asleep at Spirit Rock 15 seconds with aces before they drop. Before they drop. Poker is fun for everyone except my opponents. They should have practiced avoidance. Okay, so that (laughs) he did that when they interviewed him. Before one of the final tables he appeared at, I think in 2006. That's how he was first best known. He was also known for a, an, a fight at the table, not a fist fight, but the, like uh, he and uh, Jeff Lissandro got in a, a, a big battle where, where a chip was thrown. I, th- I think he threw a chip at Lissandro or something. It, there was a. No, I think he t- he said he didn't ante or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he didn't ante, right? and, then, and I think someone threw a chip at the other in, in, during the argument. Something like that happened. It was, it was a, a pretty heated argument. So it, it was about not anteing, though. You're, you're correct. So uh, that's how Prelad was first known. But aside from the Lissandro is- incident, he was pretty well-liked back then. 
Uh, people thought the rapping, the, the white boy rap thing was pretty ridiculous, and he, he, he's not a good rapper. <laughs> you know, it's one of these things where he thinks he's good but isn't. But there was respect for his poker game. He was known as a, a very, very good no-limit cash player. And, uh, and people generally liked him and respected him until he joined UB after the super user scandal. And he was the biggest victim on UB that we know of. He, he lost, uh, we, we, you know, well, he got credited back 400 something thousand dollars, which we think was an undercredit. So we think he was, you know, something between 500,000 and a million was stolen from him on UB. So why would he represent them as their biggest victim? Well, he claimed it because they had new owners, which they didn't. And he claimed at the time that uh, they're donating to charity on his behalf. And uh, he, he rationalized it with a lot of crap. And so many people took him aside and said, Prahlad, these are the same people. You're, 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 you're bringing people back. You're promoting a cheating site. They're using you as the biggest victim to basically come forward and say it's safe to play here when it's still the same people who stole from you in the first place who are in charge. And... So many people told him that. I told him that personally. Uh, Daniel Negreanu, who was friends with him at the time, told him that personally. Perlod would not listen. Well, this was interesting to people because Perlod was a very, very big-time left-wing liberal. Perlod, prior to that, had refused to wear any gear, even though when he started to blow up pretty big in poker and could have gotten a lot of money for wearing uh, patches. He refused to represent any poker site saying that uh, he is a left-wing populist and he does not support any corporations. He thinks all corporations are evil and he will not support one. So even though he'll be paid well to wear patches for poker sites that he refused to do so because he does not represent corporations. Okay, I think it's a bit ridiculous, but okay. I could respect at least his principled stance. So then why this guy who's against representing any corporation, good or bad, why would he then represent one of the most evil corporations of them all that blatantly steals from their customers that's still owned by the same people? And he's told by credible people like Daniel Negreanu that they're owned by the same people. And he still represents them and promotes them. Why Why did he do that? Well, it happened to coincide with an $800,000 downswing on poker stars. He had the downswing, which you could see at the time on PokerTableRatings.com, which tracked these things, and then suddenly he's the new face of UB. What a coincidence. So from that point forward, I said Perlot is the limousine liberal of poker. He wanted to maintain his expensive Malibu lifestyle. He, he lived in Malibu. He wanted to stay living in Malibu. He wanted to live well, have the nice things in life. But... Uh, so so he, he basically made a deal with, with the devil in UB. He knew what they were. And he threw all his principles out the window. Because when it came down to it, all these populists, I care about the little guy, political and social principles he claimed to have, all go out the window if it threatens, if, you know, if keeping those principles threatens your Malibu lifestyle. That's really what happened. That's really what happened. So ever since then, I, I have really disliked the guy. I'm currently blocked on Twitter by him, by the way. Uh, he's very aware of my feelings about him. and uh, He didn't block me for any particular tweet. Uh, he just blocked me at some point. Uh, a lot of people are very bitter toward him about this. A lot of people were really mad that he did this. It wasn't just me. A lot of people, I mean, it really 
hurt his reputation. And lo and behold, guess what happened? UB stole all the money that they had on deposit when Black Friday hit. When Black Friday hit, it turned out that UB had already stolen the money. There wasn't even any money left. So Prahlad had been promoting them for a few years, and uh, I think about two years when this happened. And uh, well, lo and behold, these wonderful new owners, who are really the old owners, had stolen all the money on deposit, and everybody was out of luck. Prahlad, you didn't see that coming, did you? So he, people really thought much less of him after that. Now, Prahlad has not been all that active in poker ever since then. I don't even know if he plays anymore. Uh, I, I know that he's attempted to get a music career going, which is laughable. He, uh, he, he got a divorce from his wife, who was older than him. And and now he's with a much younger girl. We've I played there. They they did a video together that Prahlad tried to sell and didn't really go anywhere. So his, the music career he's been attempting to get into or get his girlfriend into it that's that's all flopped. It's gone nowhere, which is expected. It's very 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 hard to break into the music business that way. Very 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 hard. His girlfriend had a little bit of a better chance than him. She was much younger. But you know when you're a forty year old white rapper, nobody wants to hear from you. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that's all old stuff. You've, you've heard all this before. But, but here's the new stuff. Every once in a while, he pops off about something stupid. The last thing I reported about Prahlad on this show was, I think, earlier this year, when he offered free poker coaching to anybody who needs it, except no whites and no Asians. <laughs> he, was hope- he said he's sick and tired of seeing the same races at the final table over and over. He wants to see people of color there. I guess Asian doesn't count as of color anymore. I guess the, uh, people of color and Asians is what he's trying to say. But he wants to see different faces at, that ta- at these final tables of different colors. So he's offering free poker lessons to people, but they can't be white or Asian. So he, he got a lot of, there's a lot of backlash about that, that this is him being racist. People laughed at the Asian part too. It's, it's one thing to... to Make the white man into the devil, but the Asians too. <laughs> he was married to an Asian. Maybe that's why. Maybe, maybe because he was married to an Asian, uh, he's, he's bitter at Asians. I don't know. His, his girlfriend's not Asian. She's Hispanic. So he, he took a lot of heat over that. I don't know if he ever ended up giving the free poker lessons to uh, non-Asian minorities. But, but here's his latest gem from November 14th, 2018. He wrote... Why a poker player is mostly Republican, yet the very best ones aren't. Hmm. That's how he talks, by the way. That's my imitation of him. <laughs> Why are poker players mostly Republican, yet the very best ones aren't? Hmm. Well, first of all, this isn't true. Most poker players are not Republican. I've actually found in, in uh, just my unscientific observation that there are actually more Democrats in poker that there actually aren't that many Republicans. There, there's some, but, but but really most players, most poker players, are either apolitical, middle of the road, or lean left. As a Republican poker player myself, I can tell you that I feel like I'm in the minority. Not the same type of minority that uh, he wanted to tutor, but I'm in the ideological minority. Have I encountered other Republican poker players? Yeah, I have. But uh, is that more the rule than the exception? No. 
I've even theorized that a lot of poker players are Democrats for the same reason that a lot of actors are Democrats is that they I, I, I call it the rich man's guilt that when people make a lot of money doing something that isn't really producing anything, they can feel guilty. So actors can feel very, I'm talking about the famous actors, uh, they can feel guilty that they're getting paid millions of dollars just to act, while others are working much harder than they are and getting paid much, much less. And they, and they feel bad about it, they feel like you know, they don't really deserve this in a way, yet they, they press for every dollar they can get, don't think they don't. But once they have the money, somehow they rationalize, look, look you know, I, I don't think I really deserve this, they feel guilty, they hate themselves. So they think, okay, well, what can I do to make myself feel better that I'm a good person? Oh, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll support the party. I'll support the social and political principles that, uh, that make me feel like I'm a better person. So I won't be a greedy Republican. I'll be a Democrat who's for the little guy. And then sometimes where you have the contradictions and the hypocrisy is when these people, uh, d- they live their life a different way than they preach others should live. Just like Prahlad did there. Now, are Republicans sometimes guilty of the same thing? Yes. There are Republicans who will say you can't do such and such or such and such is such a bad thing to do, and then they do it themselves. There's Republicans who say homosexuality is a sin, gays are terrible, this and that, and then it turns out they're, they're, they're closet homosexuals themselves. I, I see that all the time, too. That's just as wrong. But there are also plenty of hypocrites on the left. Prahlad is a big one. But he, So he just popped off on November 14th. Why are po- poker players mostly Republican, yet the very best ones aren't? Hmm. <laughs> So someone finally asked, some guy named Bob S., I don't know who this is, but someone named Bob S. asked him, what I don't understand is how poker players can make money through the most capitalist game of all time and think, okay, then turn around and then say they aren't Republican. Perlod, how do you feel about stealing money from worse players your entire life? Now, Bob mostly raises a good point. I don't like the last statement. You're not stealing money from players if you beat them. You're, you're, you're sitting down, providing you're not cheating. You're, you're playing a game fairly. If you happen to be better at the game and you win money, then th- that's the way it goes. Someone's going to be better. Someone's going to be luckier. Uh, especially if you have the combination of both, you're going to be the winner. And you're going to win money, and that's it. So you're not stealing. I disagree with that part. But he raises a good point that it is a capitalist game. It's survival of the fittest. It's where the ones who are most skilled, and sometimes the ones who put in the most work and the most effort, and have the most talent, they're the ones who make all the money. There, there's no... There's, there's nothing that protects the weaker poker players from losing. If you lose all your money playing poker, no one gives it back to you. The successful poker players are the ones who are the best at it. So he's right. It is a very capitalist game. And I've always wondered, for those that make a living playing a very capitalist game, how one can claim to hate capitalists so much. It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. There are professions where I understand why people are are typically left of center. I understand that. Even if I don't agree with their politics, I understand why what they do for a living would be very compatible with having those political views. But with poker, it makes no sense to me. They're, They're basically against capitalism. They're against the system which is making them money. So Bob Bob asked, asked that question of him. His response was, oh yeah, it's intelligence. 
What does that even mean? Oh, yeah, it's intelligence. So I, I think he's trying to say that the best... I think he misunderstood the question. But I think he's trying to say that the best players are the smart players, and the smart people are the ones who are not Republicans. So basically the dumb and uh, kind of those of mediocre intelligence, those people in poker, they're the Republicans. The smart ones who are the most successful, they're Democrats because the Democrats are the smart ones, the Republicans are the dumb ones. This is really how he thinks. So... I also still don't understand why he believes that it's mostly Republicans who are in poker. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I don't know if he was specifying just all poker players, the majority of Republicans, or if all professional poker players. Now, maybe if you include all the recreational players, maybe there's more Republicans just because the recreational players tend to have more money and the more money you have, the more likely, more likely you are to be Republican. Of course, there's many rich liberals, but uh, it, it is true that the more likely you're, you're more likely to be Republican, the more money you have. So maybe that's what he meant, but I don't think so. I think he really just believes he's in a sea of Republicans, and it's, it's just you know him and a few other great players who are the liberals in poker. This guy's just always like off on another planet. He, this guy's always so far detached from reality. Now, it is true that three of the winningest tournament players of all time in poker are very openly liberal. Justin Bonomo, Daniel Negreanu, and Eric Seidel. But um, up there, are there are Republicans like uh, Scotty Wynn and uh, Mike Mattisau. But um, there's a lot of other liberals who are uh, also high up on the top 100 cash of all time list in uh, in tournament poker. Scott Seaver, who's very left wing. Brian Rast, Vanessa Selbst, Doug Polk. Well, I, I don't know about Doug Polk. I saw it on a list here, but I, I he's kind of more middle of the road. Uh, David Williams. Barry Greenstein, some of them are more liberal than others. Definitely uh, the, the most liberal on that list are uh, Scott Seaver, Brian Rast, uh, Vanessa Selbst, and uh, uh, Negreanu and, uh, and Bonomo. But I, I think maybe that's what he's trying to say, that if you look at this list and see the ones who've cashed the most, that a lot of them are liberal. But I, I think that would just support my belief that, in general, that most of the professional poker players are liberal. It's not about whether they're good or bad. It's just most of them are liberal or apolitical. One thing that bothered me about his tweet, about its intelligence and what he, I think he was trying to say there, is this is very common. And I, I, Regardless of where you are politically, I know there's people who listen to the show who are conservative, people in the middle, people who are liberals. I am of the belief that there are intelligent people on both sides and there are idiots on both sides. And there's people in the middle, of course. And, and I think it's about evenly distributed. But 
a lot of people on the left, a lot of the obnoxious ones on the left, have this arrogance about them where they believe that the smart people are the liberals and the dumb simpletons are the conservatives. And that the few conservatives who are not dumb simpletons are just really evil and greedy. So to be a Republican, you need to either be a religious freak, evil and greedy, or dumb. You have to be one of those three to be Republican. So think people like Perlot. And I find that to be very arrogant to look down on the other side that way. And I don't, I don't look down on the other side. I, I never look at, at those who are left of center politically and think less of their intelligence or of their morals. I will say I disagree with them. I have friends who are, are very left-wing. We just don't really talk about politics. We just know how to talk about it with each other. But I, I don't resent them. I don't think badly of them. I don't, I, I don't hold it against them. And, and I believe that's how they feel about me, too. Are there people on the right who uh, think unjustified bad things about those on the left? Yes. I, there, there's something that people on the right like to say that annoys me, which is liberalism is a mental illness. And I, I hate when that's said because it's not true. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a mental illness. It's, it's a different way of, of viewing the world. It's a different way of uh, viewing politics and social issues. That's all it is. It's not a mental illness. So, yes, we have those on the right to think that, but what you don't have that much of on the right are them saying, we're the smart ones, the liberals are the dumb ones. You don't see that very often. But you see that so much from the left. And Perlai definitely feels that way. And that's, that's basically the point of his tweet. of The good players, the really smart players, look at them, they're liberal. But you know what? It's mostly Republicans out there, but they're the ones we're beating. The bad players and the mediocre players, they're the Republicans. The really good ones are the liberals. Very, very arrogant. Very, very arrogant. But, you know, Perlod tweets stupid things all the time. I I would suggest following him just for that. By the way, Kate Hall is back on Twitter. I don't know if I mentioned that, but definitely follow Kate Hall, too. Very entertaining. She still hasn't blocked me. Somehow, Prahlad, uh, Prahlad is, uh, he is still playing. Someone just messaged me that he's, uh, he was on Live of the Bike recently. Yeah, Doyle Brenton is a, is a known Republican also. Of course, uh, he's been very successful lifetime in poker. And Todd Brunson is as well. But for the most part, it's the, the, the conservatives in poker are pretty few and far between. So, yeah, Kate Hall hasn't blocked me yet. I don't, I don't, I'm surprised. She blocks everybody. Like the slightest thing happens, she blocks you. And for some reason, I, she just doesn't block me. She doesn't like me. I know that, but she doesn't block me. So, okay. That's okay. I don't expect everybody to like me. By nature, in my uh, opinionated, uh, my opinionated, Ways and my entrance into controversies, I'm going to have people who dislike me. I am aware of that. And I'm okay with it. If everybody hated me, I wouldn't like that. But uh, provided there's some people that like me, then I'm fine. All right, so let's get into something 
that's less, less of a matter of opinion and more of a matter of fact. <clears throat> I want to talk about the federal sports betting bill that is being introduced. And it may change the way that sports betting is regulated. Right now, thanks to a change in the law in May of 2018, the federal ban on states other than Nevada from offering legalized sports betting was lifted, and it was left up to the states if they want to offer and regulate full sports betting. And, and several states have entered that now, and others are on the way to doing so. So the question is, what does this bill have in it? What does it do? I just read an article about this today, so forgive me if I don't have everything correct. But uh, I've been trying to figure this out. The, the sports betting bill is 101 pages, and I'll, I'll admit I did not read the 101-page bill. I probably won't read the 101-page bill. But, but here's what's basically going on with it. The bill is uh, attempting to give the federal government more control over sports betting matters. Because right now it's totally up to each state what they want to do, how they want to regulate it. All the decisions are at the state level. You cannot complain to the federal government. The federal government has nothing to do with sports betting. So this bill attempts to reverse that. This bill, by the way, was introduced by two senators who are from different parties. Warren Hatch of Nevada, a Republican, and Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York. Chuck Schumer is uh, related to Amy Schumer, by the way. Not everybody knows that. So... Warren Hatch. What was that? Oh, Warren Hatch is Utah, right? I think yeah. he said Nevada. Oh, sorry. Utah. Thank you, Trader. So I'll keep you around. Yes, it is Utah. I don't know why I said Nevada. So... Here's a, a passage from the bill. It says that the bill's purpose is to acknowledge the rights of states with respect to sports wagering and to maintain a distinct federal interest in the integrity and character of professional and amateur sporting contests and for other purposes. Hmm, integrity. Does that mean an integrity fee is going to be charged? The, the, the leagues are talking about charging a fee to each sports bet to quote, protect the integrity of the games. No, that's not what they mean. They're just uh, It's basically the, the authors of the bill justifying why the federal government should nose itself into this situation. Another passage says, All forms of gaming have historically been regulated predominantly at the state level, but sports wagering, which often involves individuals across numerous states placing sports wagers on a sporting event that takes place in yet another state, affects interstate commerce more than the other forms of gaming that are generally contained within the walls of a gaming establishment. So there we go. This is this is the justification section. This is saying this is why we have a right to do this. This is why states' rights don't apply here. Because people are betting on a sporting event that may be taking place in a different state than where the person is betting. Which is true, but there's kind of flimsy justification. I don't even understand what they mean when they say it involves individuals across numerous states. It makes it sound like that people are, are betting from one state, you know, betting in one state from another. Like I'm placing a bet in California 
through a Nevada sportsbook. No, you can't do that. That's illegal. That's kind of what they make it sound like, but I know what they're trying to say is that there's a number of different states now allowing sports betting and that they're all betting on the same contest, which may be being taking place in a different state. So... Then they, they had a definition section where they were defining certain terms, such as gambling disorder, anonymized sports wagering data, and uh, sporting event. So they defined uh, various things there. The federal definition of sports wager, according to this bill, would be this. In general, except as provided in subparagraph C, the term sports wager means the staking or risking by any person of something of value upon the outcome of a sporting event, including the outcome of any portion or aspect thereof, upon an agreement or understanding that the person or another person will receive something of value in the event of a certain outcome. In plain English, that just means you're, you're betting something to receive something if the game goes your way. And you lose what you bet if it doesn't. That's, that's basically what they're defining sports wagering to be. So, first of all, this bill already places a ban on accepting any kind of sports wagers by any entity that's unlicensed. So it's not a ban on all sports wagers. They're not outlawing sports betting, so don't panic. But this is making a stronger language against those taking bets of any kind uh, if they're not licensed to do so. makes a federal crime out of it. In the past, illegally accepting sports wagers would only be a federal crime if it were to take place across state lines. So, for example, if I were a bookie in uh, California and I took a sports wager from someone in uh, Nevada, then I would be committing a federal crime. But if I were to be in California and taking a sports wager from somebody else in California, I would be committing a state-level crime, and the federal government would not be involved. This now actually makes a crime out of any acceptance of sports wagering no matter where you are and no matter where the person placing the wager is. Uh, this There's a big section on this regarding prohibited bettors. It now makes it completely disallowed for certain people to bet on sporting events. It includes... Quote, those credentialed or, other, or accredited by the sports organization and prohibited from placing a sports wager by the terms of such credential or, or accreditation. So that's, that's a little bit open-ended, but uh, it definitely excludes anybody that is involved with any kind of sports organization, or at least the sports organization that they're affiliated with. So if you're involved in any way with, with baseball professionally, then you can't, I don't know if this is a player, like if you're involved at all with them, you're, you're federally prohibited from placing 
waiters on baseball. But uh, when they mention credential and accreditation, it is wondered if they also might mean journalists. So what about a journalist who covers a team? Are they also now going to be federally prohibited from placing sports bets on that on that sport? They might be, where right now they're not. There's also an addition that uh, anybody who is been convicted of the Sports Bribery Act in the past has a lifetime ban on ever sports betting again. So if this bill passes, anybody who's ever uh, been convicted of of bribing athletes to throw a game, which of course is not a large number of people who've actually done it and been convicted for it and are still alive, but for those few people, there will be an official federal ban on them ever placing a legal sports bet anywhere in the country. Which, again, right now there isn't. Right now it's up to the individual state and casinos if they want to allow these people to bet. So uh, there's also a responsible gambling section. And uh, they also want to have what's known as a National Sports Wagering Clearinghouse. And this... Clearinghouse would would be keeping information on on sports betting and uh, on a lot of other elements here. It would, it would be responsible for serving as a resource center, coordinating public and private sports wagering interests, dissemin- disseminating best practices information, and disseminating anonymized data to state regulators. And this would be funded with about $3 million from the revenue collected during the previous year from the 0.25% proposed federal excise tax on sports wagering. And that's also been something that's uh, been proposed. So each this bill does bring on an 0.25% tax on each bet, which I wonder if it's going to be passed along to bettors through worst lines 0.25% is of course only one 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 four hundredth of the betting amount so it's not a whole lot but it can add up over time if you make a lot of bets if you made a $400 bet it would be a dollar you may laugh at that and say okay a dollar who cares well what if you make 400 bets that's 400 bucks that you wouldn't have otherwise had to pay now if the casino's eating it then fine. Maybe the casinos are just going to eat it and you won't see any difference in the lines they give you, but they also could worsen the lines by a little bit uh, to pay for this. So you never know. So that's some information there regarding the law. There's there's more to it. That's what I've been able to see so far. And is this a good or bad thing? I don't like it. I don't think the federal government needs to do all this. If they want... If they want uh, some kind of regulations against people who've been convicted of sports bribery being banned from betting entirely and other matters such as banning certain people who are associated with certain teams from betting on that sport, okay, fine. They can do that without bringing on a whole bill regulating sports betting at a federal level. They can just 
put a few elements in that aren't going to affect the vast majority of people. That will basically protect the vast majority from a small minority. But the last thing we need is federal regulation on top of the state regulation. And and I don't like this flimsy reason they're using it. Well, you may be betting on a contest in another state, so well, that's interstate commerce. Aha, okay, it's our business now. It really is rare when the federal government takes over something being regulated by the states and does a better job. So that's the last thing we want is the federal government overseeing sports betting from a grand level. And they don't do that for horse betting now, right? No, I because I, I guess that would be the most similar thing when you're betting a you know, the Kentucky Derby or something. From Hollywood Park. Yeah, yeah. There are satellite sports betting, uh, I mean, horse racing betting uh, opportunities that uh, legalized ones in every, in not every state, but a lot of states where you can do this, where you can bet in one state on horse races going on in another state. So, yeah. I mean, really, all sports, if you're usually betting on a sporting event not taking place in, in the state where you are. But still, I mean, that's, I don't consider that interstate commerce. Because you're not really doing commerce with the team. You're doing commerce with the casino over an event that's taking place in another state. So I don't agree with that. Now, even more disturbing, and maybe somewhat related, maybe not, there are rumors that there's going to be a reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act. That is particularly troublesome because that is what opened the door for online poker being legal. It's not legal in every state, not even close to that yet, but it's starting to slowly move to where states are getting online poker up and running. But apparently the Department of Justice is getting close to releasing a new opinion on the 1961 Wire Act. 50 years later, after that Wire Act was written, which was long before the internet, 50 years later in 2011, the Department of Justice determined that poker does not apply to the 1961 Wire Act. That that was the Reasoning for the Black Friday bus. That was the reasoning for the UIGEA that made funding online poker accounts illegal in 2006. So this took away a lot of the bite and opened up the door to legalize online poker in the U.S. when the Department of Justice says, Online poker does not violate the Wire Act. We feel this was written in 1961, long before the internet, and that online poker is not covered by this. So provided that the casinos accepting the wagers for online poker are licensed and regulated in the U.S., then this should be legal. And we're going to leave it up to the states. That's basically the result of that 2011 opinion. But that might be modified and not in a good way. 
it might be modified to reverse that favorable opinion and could make online poker illegal again. And you know what? There may not even be a big fight for it because it hasn't been profitable or at least hasn't been very profitable. What's been more profitable was the, has, has been the online casinos. But the poker itself has not been profitable. And in many cases, it's lost money. So I don't think the casinos are going to fight very hard to keep online poker. It's something they'd like to have, but I think they can do without it and not care that much. Online poker just hasn't translated into the money they hoped it would, at least not yet because the player pools are just not big enough. Not much more to say about that because this hasn't actually occurred yet, but that's the rumor that it's going to happen. Just wanted to make you guys aware of it. Don't panic yet. How will that affect rooms like Bovada? It won't. They're already illegal. They're still operating. This would just affect the legalized ones. The chat room, I'm reading the chat room. Disposition says they do such a great job overseeing our money supply, though, so I don't know you guys. What, what's the line on poker being officially dead already? And should everyone take their rolls out now? Well, you don't have to take your rolls out of the legalized rooms because they will be required to pay you, even if it becomes illegal. The illegal rooms, it's not going to affect them. So really just treat your online poker role the same way you have for quite some time. If it's a more trustworthy site that's been around a long time, you can keep a decent role on there. But still know that the money could be gone at any time. If it's a room without the best reputation or a very small room or a very new room, then keep very little money on there because you may just find one day you can't get access to it. And there's nothing worse than thinking you've won a lot of money online and being all happy about it. And then you try to withdraw. Oops, can't withdraw. And you never get your money. In fact, I, I always get uncomfortable when I have too much online, even if it's a bigger room. I just always, I'm always afraid something's going to happen and I'm going to get screwed. So when that starts to happen, I start to withdraw kind of aggressively. I've always said you have not actually won the money until it is sitting in your bank account. If it's just showing numbers on an online poker site, you haven't won it yet. You're most of the way there, but you haven't done the final step of transferring it to your bank account or your Bitcoin wallet. Even your Bitcoin wallet, you don't have that money until you've converted it into cold hard cash for reasons they don't even have to state. 775-FRAUD-55 775-372-8355 If you wish to talk to me as we are between topics right now otherwise we will move on to our next topic. Iovation. Iovation, a company run by Greg Pearson. Talked about them a lot. They were in charge of security on early UB. They're actually the ones who wrote the tool. They weren't Iovation. They were called uh, IE Logic back then. But same people, or at least the same person in charge, Greg Pearson. All they did back then was work on UB. A program called IE Snare 
was involved and in fact was thought to be part of the tool or the tool was part of the ice scenario that allowed them to see whole cards. There are rumors that the cheating on UB was first done to raise money for a legal defense for Greg Pearson's wife who had sex with a 16-year-old student. She was a teacher. She had a 16-year-old student. She had sex with him. And there was money that needed to be raised for her legal defense. That's a theory, of course. There's no proof about that, but the timeline matches. And she definitely did it. There's, there's articles about this. She admitted to having done that. Greg is still with her, by the way. I've always been amazed by that. Like, how do you stay with your wife after you know she's been banging a 16-year-old behind your back? I mean, that's, that's worse than her just banging, banging another dude who's an adult. How, how could you look at your wife the same way knowing that she had sex with a 16-year-old? And she wasn't, like, close to 16 herself. She, she was in her 30s when this happened. It wasn't like she was 20. How do you stay with her at that point? Anyway, Greg Pearson, unlike Russ Hamilton, whose reputation was destroyed by what happened at UB with the looking at whole cards and directly cheating people, somehow Greg Pearson has escaped largely unscathed other than some damage to his Google results. But he was very much involved. He was right there. He, it, it was, he was in charge of the security of UB. It was his tool that did this. There's recordings of him at a meeting discussing underpaying people who were cheated after they were caught. There's a lot of stuff that makes Greg Peterson look really, really bad. Someone, I think it's a, a listener to this show, started a website talking all about what Greg Pearson did. And if you Google Greg Pearson, it's actually the third result. It's called The Smoking Gun, Greg Pearson Iovation, but it's actually not The Smoking Gun's website. This is just a, a WordPress site, but it's uh, gregpearsoniovation.wordpress.com. And it gives a lot of good information about the whole thing. This was written a number of years ago, but it's still accurate and relevant. Greg Pearson Iovation, Pearson spelled P-I-E-R-S-O-N dot WordPress dot com. Has, has he updated it recently or was just all the past stuff? No, it just no stays it, there? it's all the past stuff, but it's, it's I direct people to that when they want to know more about uh, Greg Pearson. And I didn't. I, I didn't put this together. I had nothing to do with this site. I'm not just saying that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I, I found it the same way a lot of you did by Googling it. Uh, someone claimed, someone who listens to the show claimed they did it, but it's no one I really know personally. I don't know if they're even telling the truth. Uh, by the way, here's a quote from Annie Duke after those tapes were released. Listening to the leaked audio that describes an elaborate attempt by some of UltimateBets.com's followers, including Russ Hamilton and Greg Pearson, to cover up cheating reminds me once again how much I regret having been associated with the people that were involved in this conspiracy. That's from Annie Duke, who's no angel herself, (laughs) throwing Greg Pearson under the bus, but rightfully so. 
So it's amazing that this guy now is the CEO of a successful computer security company. There's even accusations that Iovation itself was funded by cheating money. Phil Helmuth is very good friends with him, by the way. Phil Helmuth is very good friends with Greg Pearson, remains to this day. In fact, he, he said recently in an interview that Greg Pearson gets unfairly raked over the coals, and if people only understood, then they wouldn't do this to him. He's a great guy, and people are, are, are saying horrible things about him. Poor Greg Pearson. Poor Greg Pearson and, and, and his poor pedo wife. I feel so bad for them. That's a real nice couple there. A, a, a poker cheater... And, and a wife who has sex with 16-year-old boys when she's in her 30s. That's a, that's a real power couple there. <laughs> anyway, the reason I'm talking about Greg Pearson now is that they are now worming their way back into the online gambling world. For a short time, they were actually providing identity checks for Ultimate Poker, which is not related to Ultimate Bet. That was that uh, poker site that was owned by Station Casinos and they stupidly hired Iovation without either realizing or or caring about their history. And then were finally shamed into getting rid of Iovation. But Iovation now is going to work with a major online gambling software provider called Playtech. Playtech, if you look at their website, you can see what they are. Playtech.com is their site. It's P-L-A-Y-T-E-C-H. Before entering the site, you have to confirm your legal age before... You just have to enter. I mean, anyone could do it. A a 10-year-old could put down that they're 30. But you have to enter your age before entering the site, as if that really stops anything. It's appropriate that they're hiring Iovation. But Playtech is a company that makes software for all kinds of online gambling sites. They say, we're pioneers of omni-channel gaming, or gambling, offering seamless, anytime, anywhere gameplay of the ultimate gaming experience and the best performing content, innovators in game design, software and services, and data-driven optimization. We deliver the complete solution and game-changing results for the world's biggest brands. They employ 5,000 people in 17 locations around the world, and... Uh, they're actually listed on, on a stock exchange. I'm, I'm not sure which one, but they're listed on a stock exchange. I think in, in the UK. So this is a big company. Well, they have uh, made a deal with Iovation. And this is for Iovation's patented Fraud Force technology. That's an appropriate name, Fraud Force. Well, Iovation is a Fraud Force. That's probably how it came to be, was thanks to fraud. But Fraud Force is designed to authenticate a gambling user's device to verify the device's actual user and their location. 
So what Fraud Force attempts to do is figure out two things. First of all, is the person logging in really who they're supposed to be? Or might the account have been hacked? Or might someone have set up an account under a phony name? And second, is the person hiding their location in some way? Fraud Force focuses on the device in a press release issued by Playtech, is what it is claimed. They say, uh, powered by a global device intelligent platform, Fraud Force focuses on the device, not the user, to detect fraudulent activity and identify hidden links between devices and suspicious accounts and identify familiar devices. Access to Fraud Force will empower operators to make real-time automated decisions on any device they feel may pose a risk. Now, what does this mean? What, what, what are they trying to do here? Well, a few things. Uh, first of all, let's say a certain device has been used before. A device could be anything. It could be a computer. It could be a smartphone, whatever. But this one has been used to commit fraud before. Let's say credit card fraud. Someone steals a credit card. They, they, they buy into uh, to an online gambling site. And at some point, the online gambling site realizes that the credit card was stolen. Or let's say it's also somebody, maybe not stolen, but the person charged back the credit card that they used after they lost. Something like that. Where they, they wish that they could know whenever that person comes back so they don't ever allow them back on. So rather than trying to track down exactly who's using the device. It's, it's more of just trying to figure out if the device itself has ever been used to do anything bad. And then if, if so, shut it down. Freeze the account. That, that's, uh, they're basically saying Fraud Force just gives the information to, the, to, to Playtech and then Playtech decides Playtech or the, the company that's... Uh, it wouldn't be Playtech. It would be the, the, the company that's using Playtech software will then decide what to do at that point. Shut down the account... Uh, delete the account, freeze the account, uh, disable uh, deposits and withdrawals, whatever. So it's iOvation that's providing this fraud force technology. What are some ways they could do this? What are some ways that they could identify the device? Well, there's a few ways to do it. They can place special files hidden on the device with a certain ID number that the user does not know is there. And that the next time the user goes on again from that device with a different account, even if they're on a different IP address, it can look for that file and sees it and it says, oh, there's that file. Oh, there's the ID number of the device we don't want to have on our system. Okay, it's probably the same person. That's what it's doing. Or it is using a combination of factors, such as that such as the IP address, such as the advertising ID, which is part of Apple devices. I'm not sure. if I think Android probably has something similar. I don't know Android devices as well, but Apple devices have something called an advertising ID, which it can be changed and reset by the user, but most people don't do it. And that's a way that your Apple device, you know, any app can keep track of if you're the same person through that. In fact, if companies share data with each other, they can even figure out your identity through your advertising ID. That's why I always suggest changing your advertising ID. If you want to know how to do that, just Google change my advertising ID iPhone, and you'll, you'll see how to do it. It's very easy and simple. I suggest you change it every so often because your advertising ID 
stays the same until you change it. And if companies were to share information on advertising IDs, then once you voluntarily give your name to a company, when you sign up for something with them on their app, if they share that and your advertising ID together, then another company can just know who you are directly from the advertising ID. So it's always good to change that. I actually have something through my phone that protects my advertising ID from being seen and always generates a fake one. But you need a jailbroken phone to do that. So it could be using something like that. I'm sure it uses some other things I haven't thought of off the top of my head. But these are things that the average user is unaware of. There's some things the average user would probably think of, like the IP address. But there's many other things they wouldn't, like a a, a hidden file placed on the device, the advertising ID, stuff like that. So it, what this fraud force program does is it inspects the device as much as possible to figure out if it's a device they've seen before, and then they check to see if this is a device that has done something bad. And then that's communicated to the operator of the Playtex software who then can decide what to do or, or can define something to happen at that point, such as freezing the account. The IE Snare technology that was part of Ultimate Bet was actually somewhat similar to this in order to prevent credit card fraud on UB. That was its stated purpose, but unfortunately it was also used to cheat. Now, I'm not saying that fraud force is is going to be used to cheat on Playtech, but the bottom line is you are trusting a company that is run by a scumbag like Greg Pearson to identify your device. Greg Pearson and iOvation should be nowhere near any kind of online gaming after what they did. Much like that federal bill I was talking about with sports betting, where if you've been caught fixing games before, that you should be banned from sports betting forever. And I agree with that. Greg Pearson should be banned from any kind of online gaming forever after what he did. So it's very sad that a very large company like Playtech is now partnering with iOvation for something like this. So this is very sad. It's very sad to see things like this. And it seems like anybody who makes attempts to communicate to these companies hiring iOvation about what Greg Pearson's history was, it just seems like it's it just goes nowhere. And I think I know why. I think because Greg Pearson was never convicted of anything because there's no credible news sources. When I say credible, I mean like a, a, a large news source that people know they could trust who, who don't follow poker. So like there's plenty of Articles by Haley Hintz, for example, about Greg Pearson. And, and Haley Hintz is very respected in poker, but outside of poker, nobody knows who she is. So no, people outside of poker are going to say, who's that? They're not going to say, oh, this is Haley Hintz. We've got to trust her. So Greg Pearson says, oh, look, there's, probably, there's people who, who, who don't like me back from the days when we did security for online poker. There's people who blame me for losing money and written terrible things on the Internet about me. And look, you know, I, you know, I, I Ovation has a great reputation. We've never done anything wrong. We... we uh, our, our customers are satisfied. We've been around for a long time. These are just freaks on the internet writing bad stuff about me because they're mad about losing money gambling. They somehow blame me. And people who don't know the story go, yeah, okay, makes sense. 
Who hasn't been trolled on the internet at some point? Who hasn't met unstable people on the internet accusing them of things they didn't do? So they say, okay, we can relate. Okay, Greg, don't worry about it. I'm sure if you'd done something wrong, that there would be record of it. That you, you would have been arrested. That uh, you wouldn't be able to be CEO of, of a company that does computer security. Of course, we believe you over some anonymous people on the internet or, or, or fringe journalists from the gambling industry. So it's sad. In 2016, the Nevada Gaming Commission approved Iovation. They approved their application to do business with Nevada-based companies in gaming. How did they get that approval? There are many people who tried to object. And Nevada Gaming didn't care. Seems like nobody wants to understand. So, oh, I thought I thought it had gotten revoked. It didn't. No, but they lost the. Didn't they lose the business from from uh, one of them though? I, no? I didn't. I, I'm forgetting what happened after that. But I, I know that it was it was approved. That I know. Because I sent you. I don't know if you got the email I sent you last week. That I ovation a salesperson. Yes, yes, that was funny. <laughs> so we might want to, you know. Yeah, we we may call them at some point. <laughs> I, I actually was listening to the call to listen line the, the other day, and I heard a call we made to Greg Pearson. We actually answered the phone, but then he hung up on us. We actually reached Greg Pearson one time on this show on his cell phone. I may have lost that number. That's sad. Well, anyway, I, I hate seeing when Greg Pearson has success when Iovation has success and when his pastors doesn't bite him the way it should he should be tainted forever yeah I mean the guy that has that page he should like pitch that story to like the Portland where they import I think they're in Portland yeah. another Oregon somewhere wherever it is yeah it's, I mean, it's find it's, some investigative reporter up there to I'm surprised people. Yeah, I'm surprised there's not more of a big deal made about that. It's a third Google result. People can see it and read it. It's just, I guess, he explains it away of just people on the internet writing lies. He probably says, even though they're not lies. I mean, or are they Google really googling the president of the company? I mean, they knows? might. I mean, everybody gets Google these days. I, I, I would think he's. But I could see, I could see too, some reporter picking that up. Yeah, it needs to be, it's just, especially once they legalize sports betting and. Oregon. Yeah, that would be really bad if he, if he gets if he gets in with a legalized sports betting market. Oh my god, that'd be horrible. All right. Well, see, here's something else horrible I want to talk about. Nothing to do with poker. Nothing to do with gambling. But I, I want to say it anyway because it pisses me off. And that's about Facebook. I have mixed feelings about Facebook because, truthfully, if Facebook was never invented, then my son Benjamin would probably not exist. Benjamin's mom was someone I knew in college that I hadn't talked to for 16 years and that I got suggested as a friend for her on Facebook shortly after I got on Facebook in July 2009. That's how we got reacquainted. And that's everything went from there. And we're still together nine and a half years later. And we have an eight-year-old son. Benjamin. If there was no Facebook, that probably wouldn't have happened. So, I guess I can thank Facebook for that, but that does not mean that I can overlook all the bad things they do. I talked about Perlod Friedman earlier on this show and how he's a limousine liberal, but 
Believe it or not, there's a bigger limousine liberal out there than Prahlad Friedman, and that is Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg likes to pretend that he cares about all the right causes, that he runs Facebook to connect people and to create a sense of community, to allow people from the past to once again talk to one another, for people to have open discussions to make the world a better place. Mark Zuckerberg cares about the little guy. He doesn't want to see anybody exploited or made to feel bad or any race or sexual preference or any group of people to be marginalized. Mark Zuckerberg believes he's a good human being. And he cares about you. He cares about each and every one of you. He may not know every one of you, but he he cares about all of you because even though he has insane money now, he's still a good person who cares about the little guy, about the regular Joe. Because he's a good liberal. Except when it has to do with how much money Facebook can make. And then all of that is out the window. So we heard all about the abuses that came out, he even had to testify before Congress earlier this year when it turned out that Facebook gave access to a certain company to do automated, quote, research and that uh, they were they harvested over 50 million pieces of information from, uh, or fi- over 50 million accounts were harvested their data through kind of a flaw in Facebook's algorithm. It wasn't a hack, but it was more just a, of a way through uh, using the Facebook, by creating a Facebook app that they could access not only that person's information, but all of the information of their friends. And this was harvested and then used for political purposes during the 2016 election. And that Facebook actually caught them doing this and let them keep going because a very flimsy excuse was given. Oh, we're just doing this for academic research. Oh, okay, well, keep on going then. And then once Facebook really realized what happened, all they did was ask the company to certify that they deleted the information that they stole. And then Facebook kept it quiet until it leaked out in February 2018, many years later. So there's that big scandal, and then other information came out about how badly Facebook has been abusing people's privacy. And I've been preaching this for years. I said in December 2017 that if the average person, I tweeted this, if the average person was aware of the private information and personal data abuse that occurs on a daily basis by Facebook that they would absolutely be shocked. I forgot my exact words, but that's basically what I said. That the average person has no idea the extent of this is going on. And two months later, that scandal hit. I I knew. I didn't know the specific thing, but I knew. I've known for a long time that Facebook was not only terrible with privacy, but intentionally terrible with privacy, that they were not only harvesting user data themselves, but they were knowingly allowing partners to harvest user data 
for commercial and political purposes, and as long as they made money from it, they didn't care. Now, Facebook defended themselves at the time that, yes, they allowed a lot of points of data from each user to be harvested by these companies. And yes, they probably shouldn't have done that. And yes, they should have uh, been more responsible with users' privacy. But they pointed out, look, it's not like private messages were stolen. Yes, a lot of public posts were seen, or posts between friends were seen. They were meant for like a public friends list. Yes, information on user location and and a lot of other stuff on the profile was able to be harvested and masked by these third-party companies. But... The private messages were safe. Don't worry about it. The private messages were safe. They had no way to get to them, said Facebook. So, hey, at least we kept that private. Well, maybe not. It turns out that Facebook actually allowed certain third-party companies access to user private messages. Can you believe that? I mean, even I would not have guessed they would have gone that far. I can't believe that this actually occurred. Netflix and Spotify, among others, had access to private messages on Facebook. The Royal Bank of Canada also had access to private messages on Facebook. And this just came out thanks to a New York Times report. They had access to read, write, and delete, would you believe, private user messages. So if you had messages disappear on Facebook, it could have actually been deleted by Netflix, Spotify, or or the Royal Bank of Canada. Now... Why would they have done this? Remember, Facebook is only doing these things for profit. They're not doing this to be evil. They're just doing it for profit. They don't give a crap if they violate your privacy. So why would Facebook have done this? Well, Facebook attempted to explain this because the public's so outraged right now about this. Of all things, the private messages were given to another company. So this is what Facebook had to say about it. They, they published this yesterday, Wednesday, December 19th. This is from Ime Archibong, VP of Product Partnerships. In the past day, we've been accused of disclosing people's private messages to partners without their knowledge. That's not true. And we want to provide more facts about our messaging partnerships. Okay, thank you. I'm, so, I'm sorry you were falsely accused, Facebook. I'm sure the New York Times got it wrong. Let's go on here. We worked closely with four partners to integrate messaging capabilities into their products so people could message their Facebook friends, but only if they chose to use their Facebook login. These experiences are common in our industry. Think of being able to have Alexa read your email out loud or read your email on Apple's mail app. That's not a good comparison, which I'll explain shortly, but I've been preaching for years. You got to keep them separated. You know that song? you got to keep them separated. Never, 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 never log in to another site through your Facebook, as convenient as it might seem. Do not ever do it. With Facebook or any other social media, just never use one site's login to log into another site unless they're all the same company. 
if they are two different companies, do not use one login. I don't mean one password everywhere. You shouldn't do that either. But I mean, don't use your Facebook login to go onto other sites. As convenient as it may seem, as harmless as it may seem, don't ever do it. I've said this for years. Keep every login separate. Different passwords. Different everything. So let me go on reading it. People could message their friends about what they were listening to on Spotify or watching on Netflix, share folders on Dropbox, or get receipts from money transfers through the Royal Bank of Canada app. These experiences were publicly discussed, and they were clear to users and only available when people logged into these services with Facebook. However, they were experimental and now have been shut down for nearly three years. Why did the messaging partners have read, write, or delete messaging access? That was the point of this feature. For the messaging partners mentioning above, we worked with them to build messaging integrations into their apps so people could send messages to their Facebook friends. Okay, let's stop here. On the surface, this seems innocent. On the surface, it just says, hey, people are just using tools. They they compared it to Amazon Alexa. Hey, Alexa, read my email. Here is your email. And they read your email. Okay, so, so what's the difference? The difference is because you are this these these partners are actually getting access to private messages and you do not have control over what they do with them this is different than using a tool to help you read your email the local tool should not be keeping access to it the local tool all it should be doing is helping you read it, whether it's the Alexa reading it out loud or whatever. But the access to the content of your email box or access to the content of your Facebook messages, no one should have access to that. No company should have access to that aside from the company itself and the user. Let me make another comparison. Uh, your browser. You use a browser to log in and read your email, maybe. Does that let's, let's say you use Google Chrome, and let's say you're reading email on a, a site that Google doesn't own. Let's say Yahoo.com. Okay. Does this mean that Google has access to your Yahoo Mail just because you're using Chrome to read your mail? No. Google Chrome is just a tool to read your email on Yahoo. This does not mean that. When you use Google Chrome, you're automatically giving Google to uh, permission to download and store all of your email messages. So when they're talking about Netflix and Spotify and Royal Bank of Canada, these companies were given permission, without the user's knowledge, to download and store Facebook user messages. Facebook private messages. So how do you know at that point that they're going to use it responsibly? How do you know that someone who works at Netflix doesn't have access to it that uh, you wouldn't want to have access? How do you know they're going to show the same care in security of these messages that Facebook may show? When you exchange private messages on Facebook, yes, you're trusting Facebook. Yes, you have the risk that somebody who works at Facebook could read your messages. But you, you can make that decision yourself. You can say to yourself, okay, first of all, I'm sure Facebook is probably taking care to where most people who work for Facebook couldn't access it, even if they wanted to. And second, 
I don't know anybody who works for Facebook, so I, I'm not that worried about it. But you wouldn't even think about Netflix and, and, and Spotify and Royal Bank of Canada. You may, you may know people who work for those companies that, 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 that are in the IT department. You never have any idea that maybe they can access your private messages too. So unless it's very, very, very clearly disclosed to the user, the user's private messages should never be sent to the server's of another company, nor should the company have access at any time to get into those messages. I'm talking the company itself. I don't mean if you're using a tool like a browser to get in. That's not as long as it doesn't transmit that data to the company that made the browser, then it's fine. But it's not fine if Netflix has direct access to Facebook private messages. Then you have to trust that Netflix is also Handling them responsibly, and you sh- you don't even know about it, so you don't you can't even make an intelligent decision on whether you trust them because you don't even know they have access. Let me go on reading this. Specifically, we made it possible for people to message their friends what music they were listening to on Spotify or watching on Netflix directly from the Spotify or Netflix apps to message links to Dropbox folders from the Dropbox app, and to message receipts for money transfers through the Royal Bank of Canada app. Okay, you made it possible, but here's a little problem. If, if people are... That may be the intended use. But if Netflix has access to your private messages, maybe Netflix decides, hey, we can use this for marketing. So maybe Netflix will scan your private messages and see if you talk about movies. You see if it looks for the word movies or it looks for the title of certain movies. And then it determines from your conversations that you have a certain preference for shows and movies and then they will start promoting to you. And you'll never know how they got that information. There's lots of good information that could be picked up for marketing purposes through private messages. But nobody should have access to your private messages besides you and the company storing them. And the company storing them should not be harvesting them either. They should just be managing them and keeping them secure. They definitely should not be allowing partners to access them. Let me go on here. In order for you to write a message to a Facebook friend from within Spotify, for instance, we needed to give Spotify write access. For you to be able to read read messages back... We needed Spotify to have read access. Delete access meant that if you deleted a message from within Spotify, it would also delete from Facebook. No third party was reading your private messages or writing messages to your friends without your permission. Many news stories imply that we were shipping over private messages to partners, which is not correct. Well, yeah, but you're giving these partners access to do it. You're not just shipping over the messages, but but you're giving them access. So... That, that's that's pretty bad. They shouldn't have such access. They should have. They should not have such access. It's not like these are just tools, like a browser to log in, but where the company isn't really granted access. It's just it's just a a go between. That's not what was happening here. There were, these partnerships were agreed via extensive negotiations and documentation detailing how the third party would use the API. 
and what data they could and couldn't access. For more on these partnerships, see yesterday's post from Constantinos Pamatalos, or something I can't even pronounce the name, Facebook's Director of Developer Platforms and Programs. this, This is pretty bad. I admit it's not as bad as them just shipping over every private message to these companies and saying, here you go, do with it what you want, but they gave them way too much access and people were not informed. People were not told that Netflix can access your private messages in this way. And you have to trust Netflix now not to misuse it. You have to trust Spotify not to misuse it. Private messages need to stay on the Facebook server and the Facebook server only. If they don't, the user should be super aware that it's not and decide whether they still want to continue. Why did Facebook make these partnerships? Well, money. They got paid a lot for it. That's why. That's why. Really, really bad. Don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. He lied directly to Congress when when asked some questions earlier in the year that this recent expose shows that he lied, such as whether they ever received money in trade for data, and they said no. It turned out that that wasn't true. So... Zuckerberg lied to Congress and Zuckerberg doesn't care about your data. They, they always try to make it seem harmless when they're, they're explaining themselves. It's never harmless. They, they, they've been violating your privacy from day one. They've been engaging in egregious privacy violations and the privacy settings they give you are intentionally difficult to use, confusing, hard to find, and are mostly ineffective in doing what you think they're doing. And there's a reason for all of that. There's a reason why Facebook wants your data accessible and shared, because they make money that way. Don't ever trust them. And don't ever trust CEOs of large corporations like Mark Zuckerberg, who claim that they're, they care about the world. They care about the average human being. They rarely actually do. And the ones that often are loudest about their progressive social views are the ones who tend to be the biggest hypocrites. Here's someone else who's a liar. A much smaller scale, but closer to home regarding our little community. Our poker community. Not our poker fraud alert community, but our poker community. A Minnesota poker pro posed as a hedge fund fund manager in order to scam people for big money to fund his poker career. But the whole thing has come crashing down. Semin Topolovic from Burnside, Minnesota. He's 26 years old. He's been arrested and charged with felony theft by swindle and securities fraud. 
A victim called the Minnesota Commerce Fraud Bureau in September 2018 is a female victim. She claimed that Topolovic had contacted her and said he was an investor who ran a firm called Goldview Capital Management. He sent the women women marketing videos, and he claimed that he once turned $6,000 into six figures in just two years, and he advised her to take out a $155,000 loan and invest it in his company. Well, she took out those loans, and in August, she wired him $155,000. And within a month, just one month later, after wiring $155,000, she was left with... Zero point zero. Well, a little bit more than that. $1,291 of the one fifty-five k was left. Since that story came out, 15 people have spoken up on social media, including some of his family members, saying that they were victims of his. Apparently, the suspicion began when this woman in Minnesota got nervous that the first repayment scheduled on September 1st never came. See, Unlike most scammers, he couldn't even make the first payment. He chunked it, he chunked it all off in a month. Pretty bad. Uh, when she told authorities... His name, they looked up and saw that he was not registered as a financial advisor in Minnesota and that he'd already been banned from seeking out investments. And he owed $100,000 in fines from something back in 2015. His Twitter, which hadn't been updated in over three years, he called himself a 22-year-old entrepreneur striving to become one of the most successful hedge fund managers and investors of all time. And his posts talked about private jets, luxury cars, and he would show pictures of large sums of cash. Of course, which is not here anymore. On September 21st, 2015, he posted a picture of 100 k on my desk with a link to an Instagram post showing $100,000 on his desk with hashtags stock market, invest, investments, investor, boss – Cash and hashtag stacks. <laughs> there was no hedge fund. All he was doing was staying at hotels and going to poker tournaments and chunking it all off. He wasn't a very good player. <clears throat> About $28,000 of this woman's investment was spent on hotels, Ubers, and casinos. He sent 14000 of it to his sister, who I guess he owed money to, probably from scamming her, and another 30000 was sent to some other people. They found evidence after this that he'd, involved, he'd run similar scams in the past. A guy known as Santo, at Santo Alimo, that's S-A-N-T-O-A-L-I-M-O, Santo Alimo, S-A-N-T-O-A-L-I-M-O, tweeted... On November 27, 2018, this clown tried to scam me multiple times. Even though he only asked for 400 to a thousand dollars, I still wasn't going. I made a few phone calls, and and found out uh, that he wasn't legit. Taking a look at his Hendon mob, it's uh, not all that impressive. Hendon mob, of course, is the database of the uh, of poker tournament results. He has cashed a grand total of $43,576. Not very good for someone scamming 
many hundreds of thousands of dollars to play these tournaments. Best cash ever was uh, 15000 The last live cash was for a whopping $350 in a $300 buy-in event on March 17, 2018. In 2017 and 18 combined, he has cashed less than $6,000. Most of his cashes came in 2015 and 2016, but again, they didn't amount to that much. In fact, aside from that 115K score, the biggest cash he had was a, an $8,750 score, but on a 5250 buy-in. So he didn't. He only made 3000 something, and if that's the only type of return he's had from, uh, well, there's that in the 15K score. Both were high roller events, a 5200 event, a 5300 event. So if he cashed twice, I'm sure the rest of those times he was entering high buy-in events and bricking over and over and over again. The World Series of Poker, he only has one cash lifetime, and that's at the little one for one drop, the 1,111 buy-in in 2016, he cashed 643rd to barely make any money, to cash 1,501, making less than 400 bucks. Other than that, he's batting zero in the World Series of Poker. So you have to imagine he lost a lot there. You have to imagine he lost a lot in all of these tournaments. So it seems like a, probably a fish who fancied himself a professional poker player. And scammed hundreds of thousands of dollars pretending to be a hedge fund manager simply to lose it all playing poker and traveling to play poker. Pretty bad. So this guy's in a lot of hot water. I always wonder when I'm sitting at the table, how many of these people are, are playing with scam money? Probably a lot more than I think and everybody else thinks. He is facing a maximum of 25 years in jail and a $100,000 fine. I imagine he'll get less than that, but probably will be put away for at least a few years over this whole thing, especially because he has been, he's done this in the past. So this wasn't even a good player who was just playing over his head. This guy just wasn't good. (laughs) This guy, the most impressive score he got was 15K on a 5K buy-in. The second most impressive was 8700 on a 5K buy-in. And this is after shooting off hundreds of thousands of dollars. You'd think he would have lucked into winning something bigger than that by this point. He's been doing it for years. That's pretty bad to scam so much money into tournaments and not even luck box once. Wow. I think I would have liked to have that guy at my table. Maybe he was. Maybe maybe he was at the World Series in the past and I won his chips. Who knows? It's the type of thing you don't remember because it seemed so unspectacular at the time. Trey Risky, are you still there? And we lose him. Still with us here? It's, it's, nope, 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 nope. Okay, I'm I have, here. Just I, had to get off the... Okay, I have, I have an assignment for you. Uh, since since you can't hear sound effects that I play, I don't think... Mm-hmm. Have you heard any of the sound effects today or no? No, no, no. You, you know what's really weird is that I, I tried a test call and I heard the sound effects, but whatever. Uh... I, have an I didn't need to hear the Prahlad Friedman. Friedman uh, no, I know, song I, I know. Again, you, you, so you, that was a blessing. Yeah, I know you, you. You probably benefited from that one, but I have an assignment to, and, and don't do it in a way where it'll play over the radio. 
if, if you got a mute or whatever, but I want you to go to, I want you to Google something called Initiative Q. And in fact, I can send you a link in Skype maybe. Uh, I think I'll do that. I, I want you to watch their video because I'm going to play their video and you won't be able to hear it in comment, unfortunately, because it's such a piece of crap, uh, Skype. But I want you to at least watch the video so when I pause it and talk about the video that uh, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm going to send you a link to uh, Poker Fraud Alert in the, uh, the Skype chat. And there's a video there, a YouTube I linked, or, and you can uh, watch that, but do it where it's muted or something. And then uh, then you can comment afterwards. And while you're doing that, I'm going to explain Initiative Q to people so that they can understand what that is. So Initiative Q is something I've been seeing popping up on my social media, most, mostly Facebook, where people are trying to get others to sign up for it. Here's how it's initially framed, and this is actually written by those behind Initiative Q, meant to be copied and pasted to your Facebook friends. Initiative Q is an attempt by ex-PayPal guys to create a new payment system instead of credit cards that were designed in the 1950s. The system uses its own currency, the Q, and to get people to start using the system once it's ready, they are allocating Qs for free to people that sign up now. The amount drops as more people join, so better to join early. Signing up is free, and they only ask for your name and email address. So, again, this is these are not my words. These are This is what Initiative Q wrote about itself, and then it's given to people to distribute to their friends on social media so they can become interested in, in Initiative Q. If you go to initiativeq.com, exactly as it sounds, initiativeq.com, then you can see right on the front page, very prominently displayed, it says, Q is tomorrow's payment network. To get millions to join, we are giving away our future currency. Estimated future value of next spot, $17,573. Whoa! Folks, do you hear that? All you have to do is sign up with your email address and your name, invest no money, and they're estimating that once you sign up, in the future, that's going to be worth $17,573 of their Q currency. No risk, right? They're not asking you to pay anything, now or ever. All you got to do is give your name and email address. It's a free roll, right? Like, even if it's not worth that much, what if it's worth uh, $700? You still did a good thing, right? Got 700 bucks for nothing. So what if they're exaggerating? You're risking nothing. If it never pans out, big deal. You gave them your email address and your name. Who cares? So, so why not sign up? Isn't this a great opportunity? You may still wonder, what is Initiative Q? What are we talking about here? I'm going to play you guys Initiative Q's intro video so you can understand what it is. Before we begin, two important points. First, we don't want your money. We just want you to join. Second, there's a real chance joining today will entitle you to receive a significant sum in the future. Stop here. 
is a real chance. Wasn't it in Dumb and Dumber where a girl said something like, there's a one in a million chance that I'd ever go out with you? And he says, so there's still a chance. It was some, some something like that. Is that what a real chance is defined as? There's a real chance it's going to be worth a lot of money in the future. What's a real chance? A real chance could be one in a trillion. That is a real chance, right? The only thing that's not a real chance is absolute zero. <laughs> so that's already misleading. They didn't say a good chance or a fair chance or a likely chance, a real chance. Curious? Let's begin. We are Initiative Q, a worldwide economic experiment, an attempt to overcome the biggest barrier to a modern payment network. For this to succeed, we need your help. Here's why. Today's payment systems were designed decades ago. They're vulnerable, slow, complex, and expensive. However, the technology for a safe, efficient, and cheaper-to-use payment system already exists. Mm. So you get the idea here. Everybody's aware of the fact that credit cards have existed for a very long time. Most of you listening to this show probably saw as kids credit cards being used by your parents. So you know it's old technology. So this is making the point, hey, the credit cards you're using today were designed back in the 1950s, and they're still being used now. So for that reason, they're slow, they're inefficient, they, they're costly. It's about time that we introduce modern technology and, and basically redo payment systems. It's about time, and Initiative Q is getting that done. And all they need is your help. Now, how can you help them? So why is it not happening? Why are we stuck in the past? It's a classic chicken and egg situation. No buyer will join a new network with no sellers, and no seller will offer a new payment option that no buyer uses. Initiative Q is overcoming this barrier. Here is the magic. Before we get into the magic, this is the one part of the video that's accurate, the chicken and egg problem. That in order to get a new payment system accepted by businesses, the business has to feel that their customers are going to want it. And the customers are not going to want it unless they're familiar with it and businesses are using it. So they're saying this is what prevents anything from replacing the credit card is that there's no way to break this cycle. There's no way to get people wanting to use something that businesses aren't accepting. There's no way to get businesses wanting to offer something that people don't have and don't have an interest in. That's correct. That's right. But listen to their solution. We are creating a payment network that has its own dedicated currency. According to economic models, the value of a currency is proportional to its use. So if Q is widely adopted, its total value could reach trillions of dollars. To get... <laughs> if it's adopted, the, 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 this Q... Is going to be worth trillions of dollars one day. <laughs> not billions, trillions. Not, 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 not one billion. Not ten billion. Not even one hundred billion dollars. Now trillions, they think. They're really reaching for the sky here. 
This is what we're waiting for here. This is what you can you can get it on the ground floor now. Something to be worth trillions of dollars. Get people to join early. We're reserving currency for users today. The earlier you join, the more queues will be reserved for you. As millions join, the adoption barrier is overcome. The network is enabled. Its superior technology makes it popular. And as a result, the currency becomes valuable. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't miss your chance. Get invited and join Initiative Q now to secure your peace. Safe and free. Mm. How optimistic. Well, where have we heard this before? Where have we heard of something like this? Something that could be used for payment? Something which is a new currency where you own some kind of imaginary token that's worth something? Something that if you get on the ground floor very early, it can be worth a fortune later? Huh. I, I Something... There's something familiar about that. There's something that has existed in the 2010s that's very much like that, but it's just escaping me. What's, what's like that? What's something that you could have gotten in for very, very cheaply that, that's now worth a lot that had you just gotten a bunch of that at the beginning, you'd be super rich now. That was, at the time, nothing, but now is huge. Something that could be used for payment. What would that be? Oh, yeah, Bitcoin. That's right. Bitcoin. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is... uh, They're trying to act like this is something novel. This is like a pseudo-cryptocurrency. It's not a cryptocurrency. This is not one of those altcoins. This is different. And in fact, they they specify on their website how they're different than cryptocurrency. So it's not even like another cryptocurrency. But it's the same concept. You have all these people who lament the fact that they did not get in on the ground floor of Bitcoin, especially those like myself who were aware of Bitcoin back when it was worth about five bucks per coin. And even if you want to use today's uh, values, which are significantly less than a year ago, uh, if if I had bought a bunch of Bitcoin, let's say I bought uh, $10,000 of Bitcoin when it was worth five bucks, even today... I would have uh, almost, like $8 million today, okay? So that'd be pretty good, right? $10,000 becomes $8 million, and that's after a huge crash of the market. That $8 million would have been $40 million a year ago. So there's a lot of people that knew about Bitcoin when it was significantly less, in some cases much, much, much less, like $5, chose not to get involved, were skeptical, and now are kicking themselves of why they didn't just set aside some money, buy some Bitcoin and sit on it, and then watch themselves get rich with no effort. So Initiative Q is tapping into that regret. And they are trying to get people involved, believing that they're joining the next Bitcoin. Except it's even better, because they don't have to invest anything. See, Bitcoin... You had to either mine or buy, even at the beginning when it, it wasn't very much money. So there was some investment in it. Investment would have paid off huge, but there was some investment in it. Here there's no investment. Here it is so easy. All you have to do is give your email address and your name. Then they're going to give you this queue for nothing. And then 
because so many people are going to sign up, a lot of people are going to have Q. And guess what? The chicken and the egg cycle has been broken. Because now with all these people and their free Q, now merchants are going to want to support Q. People are going to go to merchants and say, I've got all this Q that I got for free. I want to spend it here, but I can't because nobody accepts it. If you'd only accept Q, I'd love to spend it at your business. Well, 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 looks like we have people who want to sign up, who want to spend Q. We better start accepting Q so we get a lot more business as these people spend their Q over here. And then all the other merchants start adopting Q also. So they can get that business as well and they don't lose all the business of their competitors who accept Q. And then Q eventually is accepted everywhere. And it takes over and credit cards become things of the past. And the smart people like you who just gave your email address and your name made 17000 cool dollars for it. Or maybe even more if it exceeds expectations. Hmm. So why not? Why not give it a shot, right? Well, first of all, you can't just sign up. Remember what they said at the end of the video, get invited. Now, what, what does get invited mean? Well, signing up for Initiative Q is by invitation only. So they tell you to look on your social media and find people who are inviting you. Alternately, you can Google it, by the way, but they don't say that. But they're basically telling you to seek out people who can invite you. They don't say that in the video, but on their website, they say that. Now, why do that? Why, why put this barrier in? Why not just let people sign up? Two reasons. First of all, they want to make it seem exclusive. They want to make it seem like that uh, you're getting invited to something that's invitation only. You're you're a member of a club. You're you're special. You're important. Even if a a lot of people, it's a it's a lot of of people all together who who are important. Second, and more importantly, by requiring this invitation, they get to see who the biggest suckers are. That are promoting this They get to see Which ones they can Focus the future Incentives upon What they're basically doing Is trying to use Greedy people on the internet To do free marketing for them You think it's a free role for you It's actually a free role for them Because they're hoping that people Will Do free marketing that this will go viral and that these same people who they give this free queue to will then clamor for merchants to accept it. And they'll take the initial loss for whatever they deem queue to be worth, which they don't really describe here, but that with so many merchants accepting it, then soon people will be buying into the system and that's where they'll make their money. They'll take the loss up front and then they'll start to make big bucks because this will get widely adopted. So what's wrong with that? If you're still willing to promote it, it doesn't cost you any money. It it's not that much effort. So what's the problem here? Well, a few things. First of all, you don't actually get that much queue for free by signing up. You only get 10%. They don't say that in the video. You only get 10% of the allocation. To get the next 40%, you have to refer five people the remaining 50% will come in the future for, quote, future tasks. Great, right? They're going to task you. That's already a bad sign. Now, the, the 17K valuation, which, by the way, was like 30-something thousand 
when like about a month ago. Now it's only 17K. That's, that's what you and I get for joining in late. We're always a day late to the party, huh? But this, this current 17K valuation, is, it's based upon Q being widely adopted and becoming a smashing success. Uh, they actually state on their website that that's based upon Q being 20% of all payment transactions worldwide. <laughs> if this succeeds, which it's not going to, but if it succeeds, it's not going to be 20% of all payment transactions worldwide. That's huge. So to get your 17K, even if you get all the Q that they're promising you, they'd have to become 20% of all payment transactions worldwide. What do you think the chances are of 20% of all payment transactions worldwide being through Initiative Q? 0.0. Exactly. Now, regarding the chicken and egg problem, where they feel that giving away Q to a lot of people will then create demand for merchants to accept it, thus breaking the chicken and egg cycle, as I explained before. But if you think about it, how will giving away free Q to affiliates really accomplish that? Um, they need people to actually buy Q, and that's the hard part. Uh, even if they give away some Q to these people who sign up, that's not going to make merchants widely adopt it because it's still going to be relatively few people. It's going to be a very small percentage of people who will have it to spend. You know, m- most of the customers of every business are not going to have any Q at all. So businesses will not feel pressured to take it. They, they won't feel a need to buy into that system. They will not feel a need to get involved with that. There's just simply not going to be enough people who are going to have Q to spend. You can say, well, why don't, maybe they can just give away Q to more people. No, they can't. They, the more they give away, the more it's going to cost them. There's going to be a huge startup cost to this. They, they, they can only take so much. So either they've got to give away such little to every person to where no one's going to be able to buy anything with it, like, let's say, let everybody get like a dollar worth of Q. There's not going to be clamoring of, oh, I want to find a way to spend this dollar. No, people are going to say, okay, screw it. It's a dollar. I just can't use it. So it, it, people have to have enough Q to where it's it's worth seeking out businesses where they can use the Q to spend. and But there have to be enough people with it to where it will make an impact on businesses wanting to accept it. And the amount of money that would have to be involved in getting that done is a staggering sum of money that uh, they are never going to be prepared to spend on, on this project. $100 billion. Probably something like that. So that, that's the incredibly hard part, is getting acceptance of this and, and also getting people to want to buy Q for real money. It's one thing to give it away to people and hope that they get merchants to accept it. It's another thing to get people then after that to buy Q. So let's say they're successful. Let's say they get a few merchants accepting it. And then people spend their queue. Okay, then what? Now you spent your free queue. Are you? Are, do you really want to buy queue now? No, you're going to go back to using your credit card. So I don't understand how they're going to transition. Even if they, they do have merchants offering it. Here's an example. Let's say you you go to a merchant at a place you shop at, and they they're now accepting queue. Okay, are, do you, do you feel any urge to use queue to pay, or are you just going to whip out your credit card? You're not going to feel any urge to pay with queue. There's no incentive. So to actually get people to buy this queue for real money and then use it to, to to spend money at merchants, it's very hard. That's part of the reason Bitcoin was never really widely accepted as a payment method because people have to buy it first and then use it. 
And people say it's not worth it. It's a pain in the ass. We, we can just pay with our credit cards. Why, why bother with this and bother with the fluctuations and be afraid of it and be afraid of losing it? So there's so many things that uh, people are worried about with Bitcoin. And they say, I'll just stick with what works. Now, for merchants, it, it could be beneficial if, if Q transactions are cheaper than credit card transactions. But it's not like credit card transactions are so expensive that they're oppressive to the point of merchants not being able to survive. You know, merchants are paying, what, like 2% or something? They're, they're not paying a whole lot to, pro- to do the credit card processing. So uh, merchants, except for ones with a very, very, very small profit margin... They're not going to be – they're not really looking to solve the payment processing problem at the moment. If there's something that falls into their lap, great, but this is not something that merchants are, are, are dying to have a solution to. Now, there are some skepticisms about this, as you might guess. Some are likening it to a pyramid scheme. You know, you get in, uh, you get in early – and it's worth the most, and as time passes, it's worth less and less. They even said that in the video. The response from Initiative Q regarding the pyramid scheme accusation is, nobody's buying in for any real money, so therefore it can't be a pyramid scheme. (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, maybe not an illegal one, but it's still a pyramid scheme. What about this ex-PayPal guy's claim? It kind of sounds like the guys who started PayPal are now moving on to this. And PayPal became a huge thing, so why won't this, right? If they had a great idea in in, the year 2000, whenever PayPal started, like maybe Initiative Q is the equivalent in in, uh, 2019, 2020. No, these are not ex-PayPal guys. The founders of PayPal are not involved in this at all. In fact... uh, PayPal employees are not involved at all. One of the owners of Initiative Q founded a company in 2000, founded a company in the 2000s that was called Fraud Sciences. (laughs) I'm not kidding. The people behind Initiative Q, one of them founded Fraud Sciences. And Fraud Sciences was acquired by PayPal in 2008. That's it. That's how they're ex-PayPal guys. Because a small company having to do with fraud in some way. It wasn't a fraudulent company, but something probably investigating fraud. I don't know what Fraud Sciences did, but PayPal acquired it in 2008. That's what makes them an ex-PayPal guy. No. I also have a real issue with if you join now, it might it, you know it's, it's a real chance it'll be worth seventeen k. That's crap. That that's already very misleading. That's already very scammy looking. If they were just honest with you and said, "This is a a currency we're trying to get going. We're trying to get a lot of people wanting to use it and adopt it. And if you're one of the early adopters, we'll give you some for free. And and it might be able to be worth a lot one day. So join and, and we'll see where it goes. It should say something like that." Or they could say, our most optimistic projections show that it could be worth as much as 17000 At least that'd be sort of honest. I mean, to say a real chance it's worth 17000 is very, very misleading. Though there are those saying, what's the big deal? It's a free roll. 
it's something you could just sign up for, refer a few people. What's the big deal? Who cares? Why not give it a try? What do you have to lose? Now, some think this is a scam to harvest people's data. I don't think so. I don't think it's that. I, I just think this is a shot in the dark where they're trying to get others to do free marketing for them and they just hope it magically works out. That's what I think this is. And honestly, the whole thing smells bad from the start with the you'll make 17K if you sign up now, according to our future, future valuation thing. And the chance of it working out is so tiny, it's, it's not even worth the effort. This is not like crypto, which was... Uh, cryptocurrencies were a novel new idea. Now, I'll admit at the time I, I called it a cute science project. I didn't think it would take off. But at least you could say that was a novel idea where it really was solving a problem that existed on the Internet and that it was difficult to send money to people across the world through the Internet and that the ways that existed to do that there's a lot of risk of it being reversed and you getting screwed, like PayPal, for example. Yeah, you can use PayPal, but people could charge back. Here, cryptocurrency allows people to send money between each other irreversibly, and it can be sent to any country, and you can even use it to store value. So, yeah, that was uh, that, that, that could be the, the payment system of the future, the distant future, but the future. That, that was a novel concept. That was something where, if you really think about it, yeah, it was something that was pretty innovative. This isn't. This, this is kind of a, a bad hybrid between existing credit card systems and, uh, and, and cryptocurrencies. So they're trying to leverage the hype originally generated by Bitcoin, latch upon people's regret by not getting in on the ground floor in 2011, and basically giving people a second shot at getting on the ground floor of some kind of electronic currency, which is going to make them all kinds of big money. And they frame it as, hey, it's free, why not? And broke people on social media eat that stuff up. And not coincidentally, the people I see sharing this are the ones who I know to be broke. These people think, these people think they finally stumbled upon a great opportunity if they just promote it a little bit. In general, anything that's mass-promoted like this is usually not a great opportunity. This is true of all pyramid schemes. Something that's being promoted to the public is not a great opportunity. Bitcoin turned out to be a great opportunity. This, this wasn't, wasn't something promoted to the public. This was something that uh, sprung from a concept that turned out to solve a problem that the internet had regarding payments. So that's why it caught on. I'm not saying I predicted it. I didn't, but at least it's understandable how that caught on. You weren't being marketed or pressured to buy into Bitcoin. The interest came from within, and, and Bitcoin also, there, there was no central operations to Bitcoin. You're not buying in to something some company's trying to convince you of or sell you. So whenever it's a get in on the ground floor of such and such, whenever that pitch is made to you by a company, you're almost always being lied to, scammed, or defrauded in some way. In this case, it's probably just your time that you're being ripped off of, but 
Uh, I would not bother with this. The chance of it succeeding is about nothing. If you want to read their website and see their laughable logic, go to initiativeq.com. If you really want to be a fool, sign up for it or find someone who's uh, inviting people, which isn't, you can just Google it. You can find plenty. Trey Risky, did you watch the video? I hope Trey Risky didn't fall asleep. No, 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 I didn't yet, but I'm close. But I did. <laughs> but, uh, and I look, that guy from Israel, too, looks so shady. <laughs> yeah. They, they do, the whole thing looks shady. The whole thing, and, it, it, yeah. it, it, and that video is presented in such a optimistic, uh, we're going to change the future sort of way. It's, 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 it's too sweet. And did you find anybody else at the company aside from that guy? Because I was trying to see if there were any venture firms funding it. Or no, I can't even find that. And that's another good question is how are they going to come up with the massive money to back all this free queue they're giving away? Right. There's so many yeah. so many reasons this is going to fail. It's 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 uh, it's just so funny to see. I mean, big. if it is what they say it is, there'd be a lot of smart people getting involved, other than this guy. Yeah, and, yeah. There'd be money behind it, and there'd be better promotion, and they, they wouldn't have to count on on, on viral the marketing of it. And then they they would get merchants on board with with the uh, with with the pitch they have. Maybe they'd give merchants a free way in to, pro- to process for X amount of time. Something like that. Not not try to create phony demand from a little bit of free queue they give away. I mean, there's no way. It's, a, it's one of these plans that sounds good until you think about it. Okay, I'm going to give you a plan for something that will sound good immediately. And that is saving money if you go to the Commerce Casino and want to stay at the hotel. Now, I want to tell you guys... A little story. I'm going to tell you guys a story about me and the Commerce Hotel. Actually, I'm to tell you two stories with the Commerce Hotel. Is that the Commerce Casino, I think it was in 2002, they had a hotel built alongside of it. It became a Crown Plaza. I think it started out of Crown Plaza. Uh, it was built yeah, around 2002. Part of the whole expansion Commerce was doing when they built that new room, which has been the high limit room since around then. And back then it was actually pretty cheap. You could stay there $79 a night and there was no tax. Just $79 flat out the door to stay a night of commerce. And because it was a Crown Plaza, you could check in at 7 a.m. and check out at like 1 p.m. That was a Crown Plaza-wide policy at the time. So this is one of the rare cases where you could have a one-night hotel stay that's more than 24 hours, which... You usually can't do anywhere else. Usually you got to check in at like 3 or 4 and check out by 11 or 12. The 7 a.m. thing was good for commerce because sometimes you'd be playing all night and then you could check in at 7 and basically have all the way until the next day. So you could check in at 7, sleep during the day, go play again, and, th- and then uh, go back to your room and you have it at night. So that's... Uh, usually you can't check into a hotel at 7 and, and have it... Uh, all day like that. Anyway, many years ago, I was getting tired and I was considering, I really, really didn't want to pay the $79 as cheap as it was because I lived only about 45 minutes away from commerce. So I thought, well, you know, 
uh, I, I'll drive home even if I'm tired. It's just I, I can't bring myself to pay that. So, but one time I was playing a long session. I think it was sixty-one twenty. Again, this is many, many years ago, and I just kind of felt too tired to drive home. In fact, the, the real clincher was when I ordered food. And whenever I eat food when I'm tired, then my body has to expend energy to digest the food. It makes me even more tired. But I didn't think about that. I had one of my free meals at, at Commerce, and uh, I felt too tired to drive home. And I was, I said, I mentioned at the table. Well, I guess I got to stay in this hotel for the first time ever because I'm too tired to drive home. And then, then it happened. Someone at the table, a guy, his name was Eddie. I forgot his last name. I haven't seen him in many years. But he was new to the poker scene. He wanted to impress established people in poker, which he perceived me to be. He offered to let me stay in his room. So first I had to figure out whether this was a good idea. Like, is, is he going to rape me as I'm sleeping? <laughs> is he going to slit my throat? Is he going to rob me? Like, can I trust this guy? He seems nice, but so do many psychos. But the cheap side of me had a hard time resisting this. He told me he had two queen beds there. That he's not going to be there most of the time. That he's going to be playing all day. That I, I can basically have to myself and just crash there. And then when I'm ready, just go drive home. So I took him up on the offer. So anyway, I took him up on the offer. And I, I so I went up to the room. I think he added me to the room. or something. I, And so I go up there. And I'm thinking, is this a good idea? So I made sure to lock up all my money in my box there. And I figured, you know... I'm guessing he's not going to assault me in any way. In hindsight, this was stupid. I should have just paid the $79. But anyway, I'm sleeping there. And then, uh, I don't know, I, I, I slept for maybe four or five hours and I get up. And uh, I'm ready to I'm ready to go home. Well, I look and, and there's Eddie sleeping in the other bed. I thought, okay, I guess he's done. So I'm like getting my stuff together and just getting my stuff together uh, and getting uh, whatever it was. It made a little bit of noise and he started yelling at me. Uh, Come on, Todd. I'm trying to sleep here. Can you be quiet? Like, whoa, you know, why, why invite me to stay in his room? I wasn't like, it's not like I turned on the TV or was talking on the phone. Like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just as quietly as I can getting my stuff together and getting ready to leave. And, and, and he gets woken up and then yells at me as if I'm doing something insensitive. Uh, you don't invite someone to stay in your room if, uh, who's going to get up at a different time than you if this is going to piss you off so much. So I, I didn't say anything back. I'm like, okay, he was still nice and let me stay in his room. So I left. Well, whenever I saw him after that, he, he just like wouldn't talk to me. He acted like we, we never knew each other. And yet at the, at the table... Prior to that, uh, to me staying in his room, I mean, he was so nice, he acted like he wanted to be my best friend. So, I must have pissed him off. That, that was my first stay in the Commerce Hotel. So after that, I said, okay, I'm staying by myself. But um, another time, I was also cheap. I had played a 26-hour session. I was also up for 13 hours prior to these sessions. I was up now 39 hours straight, which was and still is a personal record for amount of hours stayed up consecutively without going to sleep. 
You would think at that point I would spring for the $79. Did I? No. I decided it's only 45 minutes. I don't feel all that tired. I was smart enough not to eat this time. I am going to attempt to drive home. So I got in my car. I get on the freeway. I'm feeling pretty good. And then a motorcycle cop zooms by me. Then starts weaving across the lanes as if he's going to stop the traffic. Then he does stop the traffic. The freeway was closed. With me stuck on it. Of all things, I had to sit there and I, I sometimes this will get closed for hours. If something You never know what it is that causes it to close. Well, fortunately, I was only there like 20 or 25 minutes. So it was a delay, but not as terrible as it could have been. But I'm sitting there just wondering when's this going to end. I'm getting more and more tired just sitting, 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 sitting. Finally, I got home and I crashed after being up 40 straight hours. And I slept for 16 straight. One hour short of my record. I once slept 17 straight back when I was 18. 17 and a half hours straight. But this was 16 hours straight. But that was the longest I ever stayed up, 40 straight hours. I did win in that session. I won pretty well in that session. It was a very, very good 60-120 game. I also like to tell the story about that session in that I did not miss one hand in 26 hours. And I've told you people before how I've done it. I did not have a bottle there to piss in. I would watch when a slow hand with a lot of people involved would start that I wasn't in, sprint to the bathroom, piss, wash my hands, sprint back to the table, and I was able to do that fast enough every time to where I didn't miss the next hand. In hindsight, I should have just taken some breaks. <laughs> okay, so getting back to this trick, though, for the Commerce Hotel. It's a lot more than 79 89 bucks these days. It has gone up uh, significantly. It's about double that now, depending on the day you're staying there. So, and I think there's even some tax too. Times have changed. And the hotel's older. The hotel's now 16, 17 years old. It was a much better condition back then. It's much more expensive now. So, how can you get the Commerce Hotel cheaper? The answer is Priceline. Now, don't laugh at me. Don't don't laugh at me when I say Priceline. Don't don't say Priceline. Come on. But it's a trick with Priceline A legal trick But a trick nonetheless See Priceline now has What's known as the Express Deal feature Express Deal is different Than what you're probably used to on Priceline Where you would Bid a price And see if a hotel accepts it the express deal is where it's similar to what Hotwire was, where they're, they'll say there's a four-star hotel near where you want to stay, which we're not going to tell you the name of it. Uh, would you like this four-star hotel for this much money? And it, it's a discounted price. So, so, so the risk you're taking is that it's going to be some hotel you probably wouldn't have wanted. They're, they're telling you they're, quote, the star rating, but that's not always all that accurate. So you don't get to know the hotel until you've committed to pay for it and stay there and it's non-refundable. 
that's the downside. The upside is that uh, you, you you get a better deal than you normally would for that hotel. So so how can you do this to stay at the Commerce Casino Hotel and not be placed at some crappy hotel in the neighborhood? Well, on Priceline, they, on the Express Deals thing, they fortunately have something called hotel amenities. So this is what you do. Go to Priceline.com. Pick the city of Commerce, California, and the dates that you want to stay. Then you click on it. Then there will be a place to click for Express Deals. So click Express Deals. I think the first thing that will come up won't be Express Deals, but then somewhere there on the page it will say Express Deals. So click on Express Deals. It will list several hotels, and under each hotel it will say Commerce Casino dash Cudahy dash Pico Rivera. So don't be confused by that. That doesn't, you know, when you see this list of hotels, that doesn't mean that's the Commerce Casino. You'll see all the hotels listed say Commerce Casino dash Cudahy dash Pico Rivera. They're, what they're doing is they're telling you the general area where the hotel is going to be. It's going to be either by the Commerce Casino, the city of Cudahy, or the city of Pico Rivera. So somewhere in, the, in that general area is what they're saying. They're not saying it is the Commerce Casino. But... Then you look under hotel amenities. There's a link to click for hotel, hotel amenities, and it'll pop up something, which will tell you the amenities it has. You know, if it has a pool, if it has a gym, if it has a casino. Wait a minute. If it has a casino? Oh, well, how many other casinos are there in the Commerce Casino, Cudahy, Pico Rivera area? Hmm. How many properties besides the Commerce Casino Hotel in that area have a casino? Zero point zero. Yeah, they're the only one. They're the only one. So any hotel listed in the Commerce Casino, Cudahy, Pico Rivera area with casino under amenities, hotel amenities that is, is the Commerce Casino. I think they list it as 4.5 stars. So if it's on like two stars, something wrong. It shouldn't be 4.5 stars, but I think that's how they list it. But it's something like that. So if you see like a really low star rating, then something's wrong, but it shouldn't say that. The only one that should say casino is an amenity is the Commerce Casino itself. So again, don't look for that Commerce Casino dash Cudahy dash Pico Rivera. Look for under amenities where it says casino. So make sure both of them are there. Make sure that Commerce Casino Cudahy Pico Rivera thing is there and than casino under hotel amenities. If you see both there, that is the Commerce Casino Hotel. Then you book it, supposedly not knowing what you're getting. You'll get a cheaper price than the Commerce Casino actually charges for the hotel. They will bill your card. Congratulations, you have your hotel. And lo and behold, they will name the hotel at that point. You're staying at the Commerce Casino. What a shock. How much money can you save? Well, it varies, but uh, as a test, I did a mock booking, meaning that I went through the process but didn't actually finish the booking, so I didn't actually pay for anything. I I looked for, I forgot what date, sometime like in later December. Or December, no, sorry, actually for tonight. It was for December 20th. (laughs) Yeah, it was for tonight. Uh, I, I did this a few days ago. But I looked for December 20th. It would cost $156 after tax if I were to just book through the Commerce Casino's website. Using this trick, it would be $116 after tax and Priceline's fees. So it would be a $40 savings 
It would go from 156 to 116. This will especially add up if you're staying multiple nights. One downside to this, you cannot cancel. So if you do away in the future and you decide not to go, you're screwed. But you don't have to do it in the future. You you can do it day of. Now, at the LA Poker Classic, it does fill up there. So keep that in mind. You, you, if, if the casino is filled up, which it, I mean, the hotel is usually not filled up, except if there's a big event like the LAPC. So uh, for the LAPC, you may want to do it in advance. Everything else you can usually do the day of, and, and they'll still have rooms. So that is a trick. 100% legal. It's not your problem if you can deduce which hotel it is. That's just you using your brain. And you'll save some money. So you may want to use that trick. I'm definitely going to use it if uh, I want to be uh, less of a cheapskate than I was in the past and actually stay at the Commerce Hotel. The, the problem with me staying at hotels is I've got to bring this, like, because of my LPR problem, i got to bring this thing, this foam thing, this foam wedge that I sleep on now it, when, when I travel. So... I'm not lying flat. I can't lie flat anymore. I feel like I'm choking. So if I know I'm traveling somewhere, I bring that foam wedge. But if, if uh, I'm just like at commerce and playing and get tired, then my only option is to like stuff pillows under the mattress. And I, I can do that if I really need to, but it's uncomfortable. The, the wedge is much better because it's, it's a uniform downward slope. If I use the pillows, like I, it feels like I'm, my, my back will really end up hurting. Okay. I'm going to tell you two massage stories. You know, it's almost 1 a.m. You may want to relax, get a nice massage, maybe things that also come with massage. You know, maybe just lie back and... Uh, let the masseuse's hands go where they may, where you may have to pay $50 when the whole thing's over as a tip if they go to a certain place. So kick back and relax and listen to this first heartwarming story about a massage. Before we begin, two important points. <laughs> no, I played that on purpose. Now, here's this first heartwarming story about a massage. This comes from Florida. Of course, it's from Florida. From November. A 52-year-old man from New Jersey was at the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Florida. He is a poker player. He's playing poker at the Seminole Hard Rock. And a 30-year-old woman approached him and said, you know, you look kind of stressed. And the guy's like, yeah, I kind of have you know, poker stressful. He's like, well, you know, uh, I'm a masseuse, and uh, if you'd like, we can go up to your room and, you know, I'll give you a massage. So the guy's going, oh, sweet, okay. And I don't know if, if this was supposed to be like, like a massage he pays for or if he thought this is prostitution or if he just thought this chick wants to give him a massage. Uh, it's, it's not clear, but they went up to his room. Now, how many times have you heard stories like this on this show where it doesn't end well? 
where, where a guy brings just a stranger, a female up to his room, and, and something goes wrong when, when he's got a lot of cash. Or Does it sound like it's going to be a happy ending? Yeah, it's, it's not. If, if it was, it wouldn't be on the show. If 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 he if he just went up there and no the girl, pun intended yeah if, if if he just went up there and the, and the girl gave him a massage and then jerked him off or maybe had sex with him and uh, said okay you know glad to be a service goodbye or even if she did that and then he paid her it still wouldn't be worth talking about in this show so of course something bad happened uh, by the way she she saw him I guess in, in a casino elevator saying he looked stressed she but he was a poker player she must have seen him in the poker room. So they went up through the room, and she said to him that before they get in bed, he should take his pants off. They said, okay, that sounds good for me. So he took his pants off, and they got in the bed, and then she kissed him, and they made out for a little bit. He's, he, I don't believe he paid her any money or his or had contracted to pay her any money. I think he just thought this was happening. He's going, ah, sweet. Then, during the kissing, she started to complain she was having chest pain. So he thought, oh, no. This is just my luck. A 30-year-old, this guy's 52, a 30-year-old goes up to my room with me, and we're making out here, and now she's getting chest pain. Come on. She's like, my chest hurts. I know what's wrong. Let me go to the bathroom. I'm going to try to try to calm down. Sorry, I'll be right back. So she went to the bathroom. He's kind of just relaxing there, just hoping the chest pain goes away. They can resume their activity. He's thinking he's going to get laid, probably. Then he heard something that he did not want to hear. You heard uh, something that when you're in the situation, you you just don't want to hear. A door opening and a door closing. That was the hotel room door. Now, why would she leave the room so abruptly? She was going to the bathroom because... She was having chest pain. Now, if she just, without a word, scampers out of the room, he thought, uh-oh, this is not good. Because he remembered that he left out his cash, which he had $10,000 worth, his poker chips, which he hadn't cashed out yet, 6100 worth, and worst yet, his Patek Philippe watch, worth $50,000. He left these all out in plain sight, probably figuring, you know, I'm not going to go to sleep around her. I mean, what are you going to do? If she tries to take him, I'll, stop, I'll physically stop her. Of course, that's still stupid. She could use a gun and steal it from him. But he didn't bother to lock this stuff up. He was too excited about the massage and whatever else was going to happen. So she must have seen that stuff left out. Probably he left it out near the bathroom. She faked the chest pain, grabbed it, and ran. Well, she was caught. Her name is Cassidy Rain Paris. She's not all that pretty. <laughs> she doesn't look very good. I know mugshot people don't look very good, but she doesn't look very good. She's got big eyebrows. She looks older than 30. 
She doesn't even look. She doesn't have like the messy look or anything. She doesn't look like a drug addict like a lot of these type of people do. But she's she kind of just looks like a not very attractive thirty year old. Uh, she's a white woman with blue eyes and brown hair, kind of a pudgy face. She's just not. She's not hideous, but she's not that attractive. She's not like some girl. If she approached me, I'd be all excited that she wants to have sex with me. I like this is the type of girl. You, like if you're feeling like. You'll do it with anyone Then it's not that bad But it's definitely not Someone you're going to be Excited about As I said Not like really ugly But not Not pretty by any means But again The guy was 52 So maybe uh, She looked better to him Than she would to a 30 year old So How did they catch her? Well First of all Because this is in a casino They had her on surveillance So they They uh Actually had her on surveillance in the hallway running to the elevators after she left his room. They don't have cameras in the hallways at a lot of Vegas casinos, but I guess at the Seminole Hard Rock they do. And then they also had her on camera sprinting to her car uh, in the garage. Well, it turned out that her car was a rental car. Well, that's not very good for her because the rental car was located with the GPS tracking technology that the rental car company had installed in case the car gets stolen. So using that GPS tracking technology and, the, you know, they were able to see the license plate of the car, with the, so they were able to identify her uh, through that, through the rental records. But then they actually were able to find her easily because of the GPS tracking technology. So just four miles away from the casino, she had rented a room at the Days Inn. And they saw that the car was parked at the Days Inn. So police just went to the Days Inn and arrested her. She admitted that uh, she entered his room. It's not clear from the report whether she admitted to taking his stuff, but she was charged with committing grand theft greater than $20,000. Her bond was set at $5,000. So, In general, it's smart... To never go back to your room with a woman that you don't trust, and just especially one that seems to take an interest in you out of nowhere. Don't don't delude yourself that you're so good looking and so charming that just random women are going to throw themselves at you. Most of the time, there's some angle to it. And don't fall into the trap of, okay, well, she couldn't overpower me, so what can she do? And I won't be dumb enough to go to sleep around her, so what can she do? Or, oh, I'll be smart enough to lock up my valuables, so what can she do? Well, she can pull a gun on you. She can let in some dudes who can take over for her. That's been done before. In fact, a poker player was murdered in the UK with that exact scheme. Uh, so there, there's many ways that even if you think you're being cautious... That this girl, you know, the girl you let in can end up stealing from you or worse, or maybe even kill you. Maybe or have someone kill you. So it's never a good idea. There's stories every year that occur at the Rio where someone lets a strange girl in their room and, and then stuff gets stolen. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be paranoid about letting girls in your room if you're a single guy, but you need to feel it out. You need to say, okay, first of all, is this girl aware that I play poker and I have a lot of cash on me? Second, how well do I know her? Third, how did I meet her and how did she take interest in me? 
Does it make sense that she's taking such interest in me? If you're if you're a middle aged guy and some some hot chick much younger than you is just showing an inexplicable interest in you and only you, there's something wrong with this. It's not going to happen that way. Especially if it just happens out of nowhere. It's one thing if you talk to her for a long time and you develop a rapport with her and she likes your personality. It's a different story. If a girl just approaches you out of nowhere, who's much younger than you and and, and attractive, and you and you're a middle aged guy or older. Uh, and, and just starts hitting on you out of nowhere There's always an angle to it Especially in a casino environment So don't delude yourself That uh, there's something about you That's so charming or attractive That is making these things Just spontaneously happen A lot of times they're just hookers A lot of times that they're showing this interest And then when you get up there They give you the pitch That this is what they'll do for this money but a lo- sometimes it's worse Sometimes it is a, a robbery situation And if you're really unlucky It could escalate to violence Especially if they, the girl lets in some accomplices Some male accomplices to uh, assault you so It's just good not to bring girls back to your room If you don't know and trust them well enough And if you can't make logical sense Of why the whole thing's happening That's okay, massage story number one Now a very different massage story that I will move on to And that is The lawsuit Involving The Bellagio Massage Girls And I'll get to that story I always lose one of these I had one of these up here Now I can't find it Yeah, I must have accidentally closed it. Okay, one second. I got to find the story again. There's a, a lawsuit where the girls who girls who were used to do uh, poker massages and casino massages at Bellagio are, are now suing. So th- this is what's happening. There is a third party company. Providing the massage girls to Bellagio the Bellagio does not contract with them anymore But they did it at one point The name of this company is INTU Corporation And this is very common Where the casino massage girls Don't work for the Casino directly And they contract with a company to provide them And the company of course uh, They're the ones making most of the money you're paying But they're, they're either giving a percentage to Bellagio or, or they're paying some kind of fee to Bellagio To be there That's the way it works at the Rio, too, during the World Series. That's very common. Uh, Trade risk. Have you ever had a a casino massage while you're playing? I don't mean like going to the spa. Like, have you had one one while you're playing? I have not. Yeah, I haven't either. They're usually pretty expensive. They're usually $2 a minute. So people, of course, wonder when they're paying that much money, how much is going to the girl? How much is the girl really making here? And how much is the company keeping? And, yeah, who do they really work for? all All that type of stuff. So... This lawsuit kind of gives a view into the industry. That's why I'm covering it here. So two massage therapists, Crystal Johnson and Shannon Dillell, uh, worked as independent contractors for INTU. Again, they're the company that used to provide massage services uh, for Bellagio. Bellagio just let them go recently. I'm not sure why. But they, so they worked 
Chris, Crystal Johnson worked from 2012 until very recently, and uh, this Shannon Delell, she just joined in January 2018, so she didn't work that long. Uh, they worked mostly at major poker events. That's where most of their massages were given were people at the poker tables during big events at the Bellagio. Crystal Johnson was also the, the manager of the massage girls during poker events at Bellagio. So if you had any issue or something that I want to manage, they'd bring, you know, Crystal, who also gave massages herself, they'd bring her out. So this doesn't directly have to do with Bellagio because uh, Bellagio hired a new company called PMI. So INTU doesn't uh, provide the massage girls anymore. And Johnson and Delel still wanted to work and do these massages at the Bellagio during their events. So they wanted to work at the Five Diamond event that takes place in December every year. And uh, so in order to do that, they'd have to do they'd have to contract with PMI. Remember, they weren't employees of INTU. They were only uh, contractors. So they said, okay, well, now PMI is doing the massages. We'll, we'll contract with PMI. So Delel actually, she lived in Virginia, and she paid her own expense to travel from Virginia to Las Vegas to have this uh, opportunity. But when they got there, they found out that INTU notified the Bellagio that numerous massage therapists were bound by a non-compete clause, and that included Johnson and Delel, and therefore they could not work for PMI at the Bellagio. So Bellagio had to say, sorry, you've, you've got a non-compete clause, we can't hire you. Or PMI had to say that. Bellagio was, was contacted. On December 12th, just eight days ago, a lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Nevada by attorney Mac Verstandig. I've mentioned him many times. He he has often represented poker players in uh, gambling and poker-related situations. He sued those guys who ran that Aruba tournament that where they didn't pay people. He's, he, he, that's his specialty. He seems to uh, look for lawsuits having to do with poker and gambling, especially poker. He's also a poker player himself, kind of like a recreational poker player. So Mac Verstandig is the attorney representing Johnson and DeLell. And what they are claiming is that the non-compete clause is illegal because uh, these were just uh, contractors and not employees. And further, that INTU may have attempted to classify people who were really employees as contractors for their own benefit. And that could also expose them to further damages. Uh, the complaint says this. It says, though though the Johnson agreement is, is putatively styled as an independent contractor agreement, Ms. Johnson's work with the defendant, meaning INTU, has been in the nature of an employee-employer relationship at all times relevant with the defendant dictating, one, the hours which Ms. Johnson was commenced, is to commence work, 
Two, the hours at which Ms. Johnson is to stop work. Three, the locations at which Ms. Johnson is to work. Four, the rates Ms. Johnson is to charge customers. Five, the nature of the services Ms. Johnson is to service to the customers. Six, the manner and method in which Ms. Johnson is to collect revenue and remit, remit the same to the def- defendant. And seven, when Ms. Johnson may take v- vacation time. So they're, they're ba- he's basically making the point here. This sounds a hell of a lot like an employee, not a contractor. Uh, and this is the masseuse's attorney saying this, yes, right? Yes, this is the masseuse's attorney saying that, that she was really an employee and that they were um, they were classifying her as a contractor for, you know, so for their own benefit. So this way she's not protected by uh, false termination laws and things like that. Uh, and, and then furthermore, that also they have issues about the non-compete clause, which I will read here. Um as material consideration for for company entering to this agreement with the contractor, the contractor, um, the, the, sorry, this this is the language of the of the non compete clause. This is what it actually said in the, in the contract. As material consideration for company, meaning the INTU, uh, entering into this con- agreement with contractor, meaning uh, Johnson, one of the, the manager masseuse, contractor covenants and agrees that during the term of this agreement and for a period of one year following the termination of this agreement. Contractor shall not directly or indirectly accept a position, whether as a temporary employee, agency employee, employer, independent contractor, permanent employee, owner, partner, stockholder, or venture participant with any casino facility agency to which contractor was scheduled to perform the services by the company. But uh, in the filing, uh, Mac Verstandig says that this is all null and void since it overprotects INTU's interests. And uh, causes an undue hardship on the masseuses. And uh, so these undue hardship claims, I wish he had uh, Eric Benzamokin on here, but I'm sure he's asleep by now. But uh, the undue hardship claims are used in court often successfully when there are non-compete clauses which are simply unfair. Non-compete clauses that just uh, are so over the top that even if the person signs them that they create such a uh, hardship, such uh, a problem for the person signing it that that it's unfair to them. So here would be an example of an undue hardship, okay? Say Trader Ruski, uh, let's say I are to be paying him to do this show, which I'm not. But uh, if let's say I were to open up the Jew wallet and pay him to do this show, and I actually made him an employee of Poker Fraud Alert, but I made him sign a non-compete clause that he will never compete. He won't compete. That once he leaves Poker Fraud Alert, that he will never be a co-host or host of any podcast anywhere on the internet on any topic for the next thirty years. Even if he signs to that, he could take me to court and have that declared null and void because it's causing undue hardship. That, uh, that that's not a fair non-compete clause. Whereas if I were to say uh, he, that uh, as an employee, uh, one condition is that for a year he can't uh, join another uh, poker podcast, that would be uh, very reasonable. So why would it be reasonable? Because you know I, I, I could protect myself from if he had a lot of fans from immediately jumping away from me onto another podcast and, and, and my listeners being stolen. So that, but but saying he can't be on any podcast anywhere for any topic for thirty years—that's obviously uh, super extreme. So, whenever there's broad, over-the-top non-compete clauses, they can be voided in court through undue hardship claims. So that's what's going on here. 
And uh, he, he's also stating, uh, for, for standing, her lawyer states that uh, the non-compete clause is, is punitive and maybe even dic- vindictive because uh, casinos are, are contracting with established massage therapy firms uh, all the time to provide th- services at poker events. So they, they, can't, they can't do it anywhere else. It's not, it's not like she can uh, give poker massages just wherever she feels like. Because you can't just walk through the uh, the casino and say, "Hey, you know, hey, which poker players want a massage?" She can't do it because uh, you you always have to work for one of these companies, and if you don't, then you you're not allowed to give massages there. So basically, this prevents her from working. Once she leaves them, she can't work anymore in this job. So it completely prevents her from working as a casino massage girl. Once she doesn't work for them anymore. So that, that pretty much ropes her into staying with them. So this is actually a class action suit. It, it has two claims for relief. The first, it claimed violations of U.S.'s, of the United States's, the United States federal level Fair Labor Standards Act. The second one is for intentional interference with contractual relations. And the contractual relations they're talking about have to do with the PMI company that the when she signed with them that they had to let her go because of the non-compete clause. So they interfered with that. They are asking for unpaid wages and lost wages along with other damages. They also want the court to give authorization that they can notify other massage therapists that may have been impacted for this and uh, that they could join this as well and join the class. So this just started. This just filed on the 12th. This is interesting because... uh, I, I had no idea that there's that they had such a thing where the, these girls were so restricted uh, as to what they can do once they leave the company. I did know that the you couldn't just walk around a casino and say, "Hey, I'm giving a massage." You have to be contracted with a company that is contracted with the casino. But I, I this has a lot more control over the girls than I thought there were. That they actually had hours that they had to be at work, so you could. I always thought the girls would just volunteer. Like, I knew they were working for the company, and the company was contracting with... Uh, I had a feeling they were independent contractors. I had a feeling that the company was contracting... Well, I knew the company was contracting with the casino. But I thought that the girls would just work when they wanted to. So they'd say, okay, you know, I'd like five hours on Monday, four hours on Tuesday, and, you know, and provided they needed the girls on the floor, provided there was enough work for them, then then they'd be allowed to do it. I didn't know that they would be told... You have to be there these hours, from this hour to this hour, and that's it. You know, like they're they're actually given a schedule by the company. I didn't know about that, and I didn't know that uh, the exact nature of services was going to be dictated too. I, I know that they weren't allowed to do sexual stuff or things like that, but I didn't know that they were actually told specifically what kind of massages they can do and can't do, and uh, and I especially didn't know that they we're told that they have to get permission to get take vacation time. 
So that really does sound like an employee-employer relationship. Now, there are independent contractors whose functions are quite similar or almost identical to employees. I worked for a defense contractor as, as a programmer in the 90s. And uh, I was jealous of this one contractor who worked there as well. And everything about his work at the company made him appear to be a regular employee. He came in the same hours as the rest of us. He, uh, he reported to the same boss as the rest of us. He was given the same type of tasks as the rest of us. Except he made a hell of a lot more money. The only thing he didn't get was benefits like health care, which at the time it was, purchase, it was cheap to purchase yourself individually. Uh, paid vacation days or paid sick time. And he didn't have any kind of protection from being fired. They could fire him at any time for any reason and not be legally liable for any wrongful termination. But he made a lot more money than the rest of us to where that more than made up for all this other stuff. He also pulled this obnoxious trick to where he stayed late every night, not because he was a workaholic, but because he was billing per hour. So while the rest of us were on salary, and if we stayed past eight hours, we got paid absolutely nothing for the extra time, he would just work 10 hours a day and get paid two extra hours. I asked him once, why do you stay late? Even though I knew the answer, I just wanted to hear what he said. And he said that he doesn't like driving home to the west because the sun's in his eyes. That He lives west in Redondo Beach and he doesn't want to drive to Redondo Beach while the sun's setting and have the sun in his eyes the whole time. So he stays until after the sun goes down. (laughs) However, this didn't explain why he stayed till 7.30 in December when the sun sets at 4.45. But you couldn't distinguish by watching what he was doing that he was any different than the employees like me. Why was he a contractor? Uh, Because what would happen at these defense contractors is that uh, they would have a need for something. They didn't want to go through the long hiring process. They just had a temporary need for something for a few months. They'd hire a contractor. Then they'd like the contractor's work and say, oh, he does good work. So then they'd start on another project and go, "Uh, you know, we know him, we're familiar with him. Uh, We're we're billing the government for it anyway. So, okay, we'll just keep him around. And that's how they'd stay. Some of these contractors would stay for years and years and years. And I always thought that was wrong. I thought there should always be a cap on the amount of time a contractor could stay with a company uh, like that to where at some point they should have to be converted to an employee. So I don't have a lot of knowledge about what defines a contractor relationship, what defines a, an employee relationship. He's thinking back to that guy. Uh, yeah, he couldn't – he did have to be there during certain hours. Uh, he obviously had the ability to stay late and charge extra money. But you know, he couldn't stay 24 hours a day, seven days a week and charge 24 hours a day. He couldn't do that. But, uh, and – he did have to get permission to take vacation time like the rest of us. He couldn't just take off and say, okay, I'm vacationing now. So there were a lot of elements with his job that are consistent with the descriptions of what was given of these masseuses. And this guy definitely was a contractor and nothing was being violated to my knowledge. So I I don't know legally what separates 
contractor and employee other than just what the agreement is or what type of employee they are like is is at what point in the way you treat a contractor does it actually become that they're really an employee and you have to hire them as employee does that trader risky do you know anything about this Yeah, several things you mentioned. You know, if you require them to be there at a certain time and leave at a certain time, control their workspace, you know. And then I know that the the lawyers arguing to make them an employee, which I think the company would have a lot of uh, fines and everything else. Yeah, they would. Pay more money. But then if she's an employee, you know, that could give more strength to the non-compete. Because I would think if she's a non-compete... How can you have a non-compete with a consultant? That, They're that's, a right. That's what they do. They yeah. do it for everybody. That's, right. So that's the strongest part of the of the lawsuit, in my opinion. If she is classified an employee or they think that they were deliberately getting around that, I, I can understand what you're saying. I thought of that too. Like, okay, if they say she's an employee, well, then it gives more strength to the, uh, to the claim of the non-compete. But I think that since it was still signed under a contract that they were a contractor, I think it's kind of two separate things. It's like... Number one, they can't do a non-compete because she was a contractor. And number two, they should be penalized for trying to get around uh, protections for employees by declaring her a contractor when she shouldn't be. I, I, I think they're going to say, look, they, should, right. they shouldn't get a benefit yeah. of, of, of having her reclassified as an employee because she signed the, the non-compete as a contractor. Yeah, but it's the legal document. There's no way it holds up. Yeah, that's what I would think, too. I think I think this is a, a typical case of uh, just a company inventing their own rules and, and, and thinking yeah. thinking that these massage girls aren't going to question it. And it's just such a joke. If they're a consultant, they have an expertise in a certain area. If they're not your employee, they they consult for many companies that does that. Yeah, I, I, that, that just seemed crazy to me. That I mean, the, it's it's ridiculous. That was the craziest part. I mean, of if they're it. building software, they you know they can't work with certain companies to share information. That's one thing. But, yeah, the massages. Yeah. yeah, it's like a, yeah, you're a massage girl, and uh, yeah, so once you don't work for us anymore, you can't give any more massages. <laughs> That's basically what they're saying. You, you can give massage if it's not in any casinos. Like what? Well, if you're a casino massage girl, then you can't work anymore. You know, you, you're out. It's either with them or nobody. That's crazy. So I can't imagine this holding up. So I, I think I think it's a good case. We'll see what happens. I'm going to do a little flashback to ten years ago. Ten years ago, I was living in Las Vegas, very cold December of 2008. Every day was seemingly high in the 30s and windy. Every time I walked outside, I was freezing my ass off. I felt like I was living in New York, not Las Vegas. Typical weather in Las Vegas, the wind is common, but the temperature, the high temperature is usually about 8 or 9 degrees less than what it is in L.A. So just take what it is in L.A., subtract about 8 or 9 degrees, that's usually what it is in Vegas. It's not... Always that way, but kind of uh, around that. High 65 in, in L.A., high is like 57 in Vegas, or 50, 56 in Vegas. Uh, same with the low, today it's attracted by 8 or 9. Now let's take a look at today. Let's look right now. I'll, I'll try to get an example. Uh, well, tomorrow. Tomorrow's weather in Vegas, 63 high, 44 low. Tomorrow in Los Angeles, 71 high, 51 low. It's, it's, see? See? I mean, right there. I just, I didn't even, when I mentioned that about the eight degree difference, I just said that 
Because that's just what I've observed, and that's exactly what it is tomorrow. Eight-degree difference in high, 63 to 71 between Vegas and L.A. That's what it's like in the winter. So for it to be like 34, 37, those type of highs in Vegas, it's, it's very unusual. But it was like that for a while in December. And I was living there at the time. And I was watching the news kind of in the background as I was playing poker. And the weather report came on. So I said, okay, I, I paid more attention to the weather report than usual because I wanted to see if the cold weather is going to continue there. So they said it was. The next few days are still going to be the same thing. Still cold weather. And they say, oh, and, and we see here, that look at the storm. It should be moving in our direction. It uh, looks like on Wednesday we should have some rain, so uh, be prepared for that. I go, huh? What do they mean we're going to have rain on Wednesday? If it stays this temperature, we're going to have snow. But they said nothing about snow. They kept saying rain, 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 nothing about snow. Now, the reason snow is unusual in places like Las Vegas and especially Los Angeles, despite the fact that uh, they do get at or below freezing sometimes, is because of the effect of the clouds on the temperature. The clouds act as uh, insulation, keeping the night from getting colder and the day from getting warmer. When it's cloudy, the temperature tends to stick closer to the same thing the entire day. So... When you're going to see the coldest temperatures at night is when it's clear. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think, oh, cloudy means cold. No, the coldest nights in the winter are clear nights. That doesn't mean every clear night is also cold. It can be clear and warm, too. But if it is going to be unusually cold in the winter, it is going to be clear. And that's because the clouds are not keeping the heat in at night. So the clouds, you know, they keep it from heating up during the day and they keep it from getting colder at night so when precipitation comes of course there's clouds and it clouds up everywhere and that prevents the temperatures from getting to their usual lowest point in a cold spell but under very unusual circumstances you can have a cold spell that is uh, so extreme that even with the clouds in the area it is still cold enough to snow it very, very, very rarely happens in Los Angeles, even in the cooler areas like the Valley. Even, even there, it's very, very unusual for snow. Las Vegas does get some snow, but it's almost always flurries or very, very light snow. Or a mixture of, of snow and rain. What Las Vegas gets very little of is measurable snow. Snow where it snows, a lot comes down, and it sticks to the ground. Usually you get snow flurries, you see little flurries in the air, and then they hit the ground and melt because it's not even below freezing. But I saw the high was like, it was supposed to be like 34, 35, and I'm going, okay, it looks to me like snow. That's the high. I mean, I, I, th- I think it looks like we're going to get real precipitation coming. And it's going to be cold enough. There's got to be at least a decent chance of snow and of real snow here. Why are they not saying it? Well, I was convinced it was going to snow. I went to go play at Bellagio. It was during the Five Diamond event. So I was playing the cash games at Bellagio, and I'm telling people, it's, it's going to snow here on Wednesday. Nobody believed me. 
people told me it doesn't snow in Las Vegas. Las Vegas at the most gets a dusting. It gets snow flurries. We don't get measurable snow in Vegas. I said, no, no, I think we're going to get measurable snow. I think we're going to have like several inches of snow on Wednesday. I explained why. Nope, that doesn't happen, they told me. Never seen it before. Uh, I'm wrong. It's going to be rain or it's going to be snow that doesn't stick to the ground. Nobody believed me. Nobody bought it. I ran into so many doubters, I believed the doubters, and I decided that I was probably wrong and that I was seeing something that didn't really exist, that it wasn't going to happen like I thought. I was missing something. So I talked myself out of it. Wednesday came, and I had to go to the DMV. At 4 p.m., I drove to the DMV. I got out of my car, and there were snow flurries. I said, oh, what do you know? The snow's here. But yeah, it is kind of flurries. Okay. Well, whatever. Time to go in the DMV. Hope the line's not too long. I was in the DMV about 45 minutes. Came out at 4.45. There was snow on the ground. There was snow on my car. And the snow was coming down pretty heavy. In fact, that snow, it was not wet snow. It was not flurries. It was a real snowstorm coming down like I was used to when I'd be in the mountains. I said, ha-ha, I was right. This is snow. Well, everybody was driving around so scared. People were driving like 10 miles per hour on roads that were like 45 and I had a number of miles to drive back home. I, I didn't live that close to DMV. I had to drive on curbs, on medians, on bike paths. I, I had to go the opposite side of the street. I had to weave around traffic in any way I could to get home in a reasonable amount of time because everyone was driving ridiculously slow out of fear of driving in snow because people in Vegas were not used to that. Why was I not afraid of that? Because I've driven in snow a lot. I've driven in snow in Lake Tahoe. I've driven in snow in Mammoth. I've driven in snow in Big Bear. So I, I've, I'm not saying I drive in snow all the time, but I, I'm a lot better at it than someone who's never driven in snow before, like those living in Las Vegas, for the most part. So I got around all the people, got back home. Sure enough, six inches of snow came down on December 17th, 2008. Eight inches came down in Henderson, which is next to Las Vegas. You can find... Videos of this on YouTube. Type in December 17th, Snow, Las Vegas, and you will see Winter Wonderlands out of Las Vegas neighborhoods. They look nothing like Vegas neighborhoods. It looks like you're looking in uh, Michigan or something, (laughs) the way the snow is covering everything. That was the second most snow that Vegas has had in recorded weather history there. The only time more came down was when seven point something inches came down in 1979. But to me, most notable was how nobody predicted it. And when I predicted it, nobody believed me and convinced me that I was being an idiot. Looking at the chat room. I am Greek said company will lose. They were employees referring to the massage girl thing. Cannot dictate all these things. I'm an independent contractor. If you impose any, all conditions, if you impose all any conditions, whatever that means, you're an employee. Then he said, thanks for the show and ditched out. (laughs) All right. 775 fraud 55, 775 is the number. Second to last topic, not going to be a long one. Video poker 
has something called a sequential royal flush, which usually you don't get additional money for playing or for, for hitting. A royal flush, you guys all know what that is. But what is a sequential royal flush? A sequential royal flush is a flush that goes ace, king, queen, jack, ten, or the reverse. Ten, jack, queen, king, ace. That's a sequential royal flush. It is very, very hard to get. Odds of getting a regular royal flush in video poker, where you're dealt five cards, you hold whatever cards you want to keep, and then uh, you're dealt whatever cards you don't hold, and that's your hand at the end. The odds of a regular royal flush is it's about one in forty forty thousand. So, you have to play a lot of hands usually to get a royal flush, but uh, it's one in forty thousand. The odds of hitting a dealt royal flush—that is, where a royal flush is just dealt to you off the bat—you don't have to hold any cards to draw for it. That's the same as flopping a royal in Texas Hold'em, interestingly enough. And that's about 1 in 640,000. I have flopped one royal in my life, and it was 15 years ago. Trader Ruski, how many royals have you flopped in your life in, in uh, Hold'em? Let's see here. Uh-oh. I think we may have lost Trader Ruski. I may have to drop him. Trader Ruski, speak now or forever hold your peace. I think we lost. No, we lost him. Okay, never mind. All right, so never. I guess he's gone. I guess he can't answer us. He's actually off the phone. Just must have been drinking the tea. So I won't get that answer. But I've only flopped one royal in my life. I've never been dealt a royal in video poker. That's one in 640,000. What's the odds of a sequential royal flush, whether dealt or drawn? Just any kind of sequential royal. One in one, sorry, one in 4.8 million. One in 4.8 million. On average, you will get a sequential royal once out of every 120 royals that you hit. <laughs> so, it's hard enough to hit a royal, then you got once out of 120 royals that you hit, you'll get a sequential. A lot of people never hit 120 Royals in their lifetime, especially if they just play single-play machines. If you play like a 100-play machine, you'll, you'll hit more Royals, but a single-play machine where you just get dealt one hand at once, you'll, you probably won't hit 120 Royals in your life, unless you're just playing video poker all the time. So one in, one point, one in almost 5 million hands, you'll get a sequential Royal. Unfortunately, if you do get one, you don't get paid any better in most cases than a regular Royal Flush. A regular Royal Flush will typically pay you 800 times what you bet. So, if you bet uh, 20, uh, if you bet $25 in the hand, you'll get $20,000. And this is only at, a, at max play, meaning you do, uh, you're betting five coins per hand. So if it's like a $5 video poker machine, it's actually $25 per hand to max play, which you should always do because that's the only way you get paid right for the Royal. If it's a $1 machine, it's $5 per hand. So whatever the max play is, you just multiply that by 800. That's where you're going to get for the Royal. Well, there's a machine at the Red Rock which has 
a sequential royal flush. And you can get it one of two ways. You can get one going forward, as I said, from 10 to ace, or back from ace to 10. Now, if you can do it both ways, then it's only 1 in 2.4 million, because there's two ways to hit it. You get double the chances of hitting it. But still, 1 in 2.4 million is, is very hard to hit. So this is a re- what's called a reversible royal machine, meaning you can hit the sequential royal either forward or backward. And a jackpot accumulates as people play and don't hit it. It keeps going up and up and up. Well, the jackpot at Red Rock was $217,592. And at Red Rock on uh, December 15th, I believe, someone hit that sequential royal, ace, king, queen, jack, ten, all of spades. This person held the ace, queen, and jack, and they drew the king and ten in the right spots. They won $217,592. They were only playing a dollar machine. So that was pretty impressive that they were playing a a dollar machine, which means it's $5 per hand, and they won 217000 The pay table on this machine was otherwise not that great, it was one for jacks or better, one for two pair, one for two pair, three for three of a kind, four for a straight, six for a flush, eight for a full house, and uh, <clears throat> eighty-four of a kind, fifty for a straight flush, two fifty for a royal, and then the jackpot for the or eight hundred for the royal. Sorry, and the jackpot for uh, the sequential royal. And when I say those numbers, that's how many times your bet you get. So if you get two pair of jacks or better, you just break even. So by itself, that's not the great of a machine, but still, they uh, did quite well there. I think someone calculated that because of how high that jackpot was, it was technically positive expectation to play that machine. The the, the sequential royal jackpot was so high that it was technically positive expectation on that machine, but... Since that's so hard to hit one out of every 2.4 million hands, I, I wouldn't go play that thinking I'm going to make a profit because you need to hit that sequential royal uh, to have that profit expectation. What some video poker players do, in fact, unless they're going to run a whole lot of hands, is to keep themselves away from the variance eating them alive. They actually count out the royal and the straight flush. I'm talking about a normal machine, because those are hard to hit. And figure out the pay table for all the other hands. And just assume they won't hit those two, because usually in a typical session you won't. And then figure out from there what they're likely to lose if they run completely average otherwise. And if it's more than they are comfortable losing in whatever promotion they're chasing then they don't do it. Just because, you know, yes, you can get lucky and hit one of those two things and that changes everything. But that's a way to more control your variance to say, since I'm probably not going to hit these two, I don't want to 
have it likely I lose X amount of money if I play this even with this promotion that's a, that makes a positive expectation. So that's, that's a way some people look at it, especially those without really deep roles or, or who don't want to risk a lot. All righty, final topic. show's been going on for a while now, well over four hours. So I got through a lot of topics here. The Hollywood casino, Jamul, has changed. It was a little while ago, too. I just found out about this recently. The Hollywood Casino brand is owned by Penn National Gaming. They own more than 40 casinos around the country. So any Hollywood casino, anything that's that's owned by Penn National Gaming. So there's some Indian casinos that are associated with non-Indian brands. Where they're managed by outside companies. Where outside companies will sometimes invest in them. Harris Rincon, also known as Harris Resort Southern California, is a good example. That's a Caesars property, but it's on Indian land, and it's an Indian casino. Same with Harris Akchin in Phoenix. and very you know, So there are Caesars properties that are Indian casinos, which some people don't know. So Hollywood Jamul Casino, it was a Penn National Gaming Casino, and that is located... East of San Diego, you have to drive about 28 miles east to get to it. It's uh, the, the closest city of any consequence is El Cajon, which is northwest of the of Hollywood Jamul. So Hollywood Jamul is pretty much east of anything of consequence in the San Diego area. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but not too far in the middle of nowhere. As I said, 28 miles from San Diego, 12 miles from El Cajon. And it was opened in October 2016. It took a long time to get this place open. Dating back to 2007, they had plans to open it, and it was in developmental hell. There were all kinds of uh, legal and community issues that were keeping it from opening, a lot of fighting back and forth. It finally opened on October 1st, 2016. Between opening and March 2018... They lost $89.8 million. <laughs> when you see a casino, don't you just kind of picture that they're like printing money? Don't you just picture that, you know, that, do you kind of wish you're the owner? Don't you watch these suckers dropping money into slot machines and you think, wow, I, I wish I was the owner here. I wish I could just sit here and make money like this. You know, and look, they've got a restaurant, they've, you know, they've got a hotel. Like, it just seems like there's so many different revenue sources. How could they lose? Well, they did. I don't know how, but they lost uh, $89.8 million between October 2016 and March 2018. So this caused a separation. The marriage was over. In May 2018, there was an official separation between Hollywood Jamul and the Indian tribe that owned it, the Jamul Indian Village tribe. So the relationship severed, and therefore the casino could no longer be called Hollywood Jamul. 
it was just called now Jamul. Penn National Gaming made an SEC filing on March 31st, 2018, stating during 2017, our loan to the Jamul Indian Village Development Corporation went into default, and as a result, Penn incurred impairment charges related to its loan and funding commitments of $89.8 million. This impairment charge, what they're talking about, is they're, they're basically writing it off. So in their SEC filing, they said they're just basically writing off uh, 80, $89.8 million. So they're giving up. They, they basically gave up, and in May, they just, they just separated. The Jamul tribe did not seem very sad about the split. Erica Pinto, who's the chairwoman of the Jamul tribe, said, I made the announcement of the split on March 1st, and it was met with applause. When a billboard went up in Mission Valley showing the rebranded name, I said, look, guys, we're finally doing it for ourselves. It was so exciting. Yeah, doing what for yourself? Losing more money? <laughs> I don't know how they've been doing since then. This was an article in May I'm reading. Supposedly, though, the transition did not result in any local job losses. Apparently, all the jobs were held by locals, not by employees of Penn National. They also brought on a new human resources director and a new San Diego-based marketing team before the uh, marketing was being done, combination of in-house and by Penn National, and uh, and also a new general manager. Her name is uh, Mary Butt Cheeks. It's an interesting name for, it, for an Indian. No, no, it's just Mary Cheeks. So Pinto was asked what operational changes they implemented to ensure that the casino was not going to continue failing. And they said that Butt Cheeks had been hired only a month prior and is still reviewing the processes. That's not very confidence-inspiring, is it? That's not making me think that things are going to be much different. They did say that they're going to enhance the customer service and food and beverage offerings. I don't think that's going to do it, though. When you lose $90 million in in less than a year and a half, you think the new general manager would come in with with some pretty drastic changes, or at least they'd have an idea of what went wrong. Shouldn't it be obvious? I mean, maybe they can't turn it profitable right away, but shouldn't it be obvious when you've lost that much money that fast that you really screwed up some way? And wouldn't it be smart to state what those changes are and implement them immediately? Like a, for them to come in after losing that much money so quickly in a casino of all places and then say, oh, well, it's been only a month. We haven't really figured it out yet, but we'll, we'll get it. We'll get, oh, you know, we're going to give you better. We're going to do better food and beverage and, and the customer service will be better. That'll make the 90 million go away. Yeah. So... They did make a few changes, They, uh, aside from changing the billboards and the sign in front to not say Hollywood anymore. They also had to introduce a new players club because they can't be part of the Penn National uh, Players Club anymore. They, they changed it to the Sweetwater Rewards Program. And uh, they also had to change uh, some of the casino's amenities that were named after Hollywood-type stuff. They had to change it to just uh, more generic stuff. Like the Hollywood and Grind Cafe is just called the coffee shop. 
the Rodeo Drive gift shop is just called the Dramul Trading Company. These aren't even creative names. Right, right away, I'm not very happy with Butt Cheek's job there. So I, I don't know how long this place is going to last. I don't know why it's not doing well. There, there is a lot of competition in the San Diego area. There are a lot of different Indian casinos in San Diego. Not the city itself, but like right outside the city, there's a lot of different ones in every direction, including Harris Rincon. So it's just possible it's oversaturated. That's possibly why it's not working. And uh, the other problem for Jamul, and maybe the reason they've been failing, is because the other San Diego casinos are spending big money to improve, and Jamul, not only are they not spending big money to improve, but they don't have that big of uh, a property. So they can't even expand that much. But other San Diego area casinos are adding new hotel towers, massive pool areas, luxury spas, and Jamul can't really do any of that on where they sit. So, And I, I don't even know if they have the funding to continue doing something like that. So that is their situation, and I have a feeling they're not going to change much. The... They do have a Tony a Tony Gwynn Sports Pub. And you can see a lot of memorabilia of Tony Gwynn on display at the Sports Pub. For those of you that don't know, Tony Gwynn is the most famous San Diego Padre of all time. He spent his entire career as a San Diego Padre. He was known for always hitting for a very high batting average. He may have hit 400 in 1994 had there not been a strike-shortened season. When the season got ended by a strike in mid-August of that year, he was hitting 394. And uh, he finished with a very high lifetime batting average. He was definitely the best San Diego Padre of all time. He's the most beloved San Diego Padre of all time, for sure. He had a brother and a son who played, but never neither of which uh, did very well. and They made it to the majors, but never much of an impact. Tony Gwynn also was generally known as a nice guy, and the community loved him. Unfortunately, he died at a young age. He died in his 50s due to cancer, I think salivary gland cancer, that uh, it was believed that he got this from chewing tobacco a lot of his life. So... A chewing tobacco habit is, is not a good one. Tony Gwynn is no longer with us. He died a few years ago. Tony actually hid his condition. It wasn't known that he had cancer until uh, very close before he died. So he, he really tried to hide anyone from seeing that. I'm not sure how his stuff ended up in the Hollywood Jamul for, of all places, but that, that's where it is. They claim that uh, there's now a new monument sign as soon as you drive into the casino that will shine a light on the various culinary offerings there. <laughs> I think they're focusing on the wrong things. I mean, these things are fine, I guess. They're not game changers. So if you want to see the Hollywood Jamul, I suggest you get down there. Or otherwise, it may not be there for much longer. I'm not, I'm not hearing it's going to shut down anytime soon, but the money's got to come from somewhere.
Well, the topics have to come from somewhere, and, and I don't have any more. That's it. We're done. The show is in the can. Hopefully we will have one every week. Question. Will there be a show next week? During the holidays, the holiday period between Christmas and New Year's? Answer? Yes. Next week... There may be a show on Wednesday the 26th. There will be a show sometime next week, okay? I'm not sure what day it'll be. I will announce it. Go to twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. There should be a show also the following week, so I don't think we'll be missing any shows during the holidays here. Hopefully I still feel okay enough to do these shows. At the moment I do. And... I've been getting through these okay, these four-and-a-half-hour type shows. This one was a little bit longer. This one was almost five. I think uh, four hours, 50 minutes or so. I feel okay at the moment. I feel a little soreness from all the talking, but I think I can handle it once a week. Thank you to Trader Ruski for joining us while he was awake. Spread the word. Poker Fraud Alert Radio is back. And I'll keep doing this as long as I can. 2019 will be the eighth year for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. It'll be the eighth year, yet we haven't been on for seven years yet. We started in March of 2012. So our seven-year anniversary will be in March. Our eighth calendar year begins in January. Our eighth full year begins also in March. We will keep on going. Hopefully one day I'll be able to announce that I'm feeling all better or mostly better. Until then, I'll still be here doing the show, something I miss when I don't do. Thank you very much for listening. If there's ever anything you want to bring to my attention to discuss on the show, text me 775-372-8355 is our text number. You can text me anytime. That is all for tonight. Good night and shalom.